it um, tells us whether that's good or bad. And if it's not um, deemed by the body as a friend, then our immune system becomes activated. Welcome to the Superwell Podcast, your source for truly holistic and original perspectives on health and happiness. Each week, we take true dives into the key areas of life with true leaders and true conversations. It's your time for a Superwell Life. Hello, Superwell team. Welcome to our second ever Superwell Solutions episode. And today's episode, we are going to dive deep into immunity. Given the time of year, heading into winter, where lots of people obviously suffer from colds and coughs and illness, we thought it'd be a really appropriate time to have this conversation. And there was no one better from our practice to sit down and have a discussion with than our naturopath, Fiona Chin. And we go into quite a lot of information. Up front, we start with a discussion around all the elements of our body that actually make up the immune system and then we talk a little bit about what can go wrong and what we can do from a lifestyle perspective to improve our immune function and also prevent um, things from occurring as well so it's a really in-depth great conversation heaps of beautiful content in there for you i hope you enjoy and as always make sure you pick up the conversation on our instagram feed as well cheers Okay, Fee, here we go. Let's have a little bit of a... A little bit? A little bit, a big bit. <laughs> a big bit of a chat around uh, immune function. And I guess the best place to start for this conversation is to talk about what our body has in terms of organs yeah. and where our immune system resides in our body and how it functions, which is a big, big question <laughs> and a, a big topic. Question. But yep. let's navigate through that first so that when we... Um, talk about some of the things that can influence immune function and how people can behave it'll make sense later on in the podcast once people have a bit of an idea of what's in our body that is actually helping our body protect itself in the way of immunity sure and maybe we can start with a bit of an overview of what we mean when we say the immune system so i can go through the organs and the glands but i guess The basic thing is your immune system is your um, body's ability to regulate its internal status versus its external status. So it's the way the immune system is like your communication between your external environment and your internal environment. And it sort of regulates whether we react to things, whether something coming in is friend or foe. And whether the immune system, and the immune system is actually what gets to decide that. It doesn't always get it right, but we'll get into that a bit later. Um, and then, so when we're taking things in, it um, tells us whether that's good or bad. And if it's not um, deemed by the body as a friend, then our immune system becomes activated. Um, and that's when we get all these different immune responses. And so the um, organs, glands, tissues, and systems that make up the immune system are basically all ways for the body to communicate whether something that's come into contact with the body from an external source or an internal source um, is friend or foe. And so all of these organs and glands are basically communicators and they feed that back through blood cells, white blood cells, um, different parts of uh, the body and that communication then um, is feedback for the body to say whether it needs to do anything with that information. So let's get into it. So I guess the basic things, I guess as we breathe in air the first sort of part of our immune system is our mucous membranes that covers all of our nasal passages down our throat 
Um, mucous membranes go right through the gut as well. Um, and then that's the first part where we, you know, inhale air and are we taking in pollens or are we taking in like poisonous chemicals? And so the mucous membranes are the first barrier there. I should also say the skin is also a huge um, immune it works as an elementary organ, but it's also an immune organ as well that also uh, communicates anything that touches it, whether that's a uh, friend or a foe. Your tonsils and your adenoids, and there's actually three. When we say tonsils, there's actually three types of tonsils. There's the adenoids, um, the tonsils that everybody knows about, which are the big glands there, and then there's a third set which um, sits in there somewhere. There's a... Um, the actual exact location of them um, escapes me. and But yeah, adenoids are actually a type of tonsil as well. So when we um, follow, swallow food, the tonsils are actually the first part that comes into contact with that and decides again whether that's something that um, the body's liking or not. So when we remove our tonsils and our adenoids, it actually puts a greater burden on other um, immune organs further down or in other places of the body. We've got the thymus that sits as a... Um, I don't know, it starts off quite large and shrinks over our age, but it sits just behind the heart. The thymus in children is super important because it does most of the role of what bone marrow does and produces all your T and B lymphocytes and stems and stem cells and things like that. And as we get older, it actually shrinks, and um, the role of the thymus is mostly taken over by fat cells, believe it or not. Um, and I just find it interesting, birds have the largest thymus gland out of any um, any animal mammal yeah. anything in the world um and that's um for a body to weight ratio and the theory is because of the singing it makes the thymus gland big and through the heart and stuff oh. interesting side fact there you go <laughs> um, after the thymus we've got all the lymph nodes and the lymphatic system uh, the lymphatic system sits you know we know it under the armpits in the groin um, and actually we've got quite a huge lymphatic system that sits around the brain um that is sort of a more recent sort of discovery that cleans out all our um, brain tissue and also helps with cerebral spinal fluid um, cleaning that out we've got the spleen um, we've got something called uh, we've got our bowel and inside our bowel we've got something called gut associated lymphoid tissue and that is uh, a lymphatic system that actually sits through the gut in fact I think it's 80% of the lymphatic um, system or nodules are actually in the gut which is why you see a lot of people with lymphomas and things like that where you know you'll see a lot of these um, nodules that sit in the gut but the gut is super important as you imagine um we're kind of the digestive system's like this big hollow pipe that goes from our mouth all the way out the other end and that is where we basically shove foreign objects and and foods and um chemicals and all sorts of things for our body to process and our gut is really a huge part that comes in um contact with our external world so it's actually interesting because i mean something that I remember reading once and learning about is that your actual gut is not inside your body. Yeah. It's whilst it's inside you physically, yeah. it's actually the external world. Because yes. once you open your mouth, between the opening of your mouth and then your bum, yeah. it's actually just one big hollow tube. Yeah. So in fact is actually the external world. Yes, uh, that's a great that's actually a great way of I haven't heard it said like that before, but it's actually really interesting. And then, of course, you've got all the microbes that sit in there as well. So, Well, if you think about it like, I mean, for the people listening, if you think about flossing your teeth, so you have, you're holding each end of the floss and mm-hmm. you put it between your teeth. If you, you could essentially put 
a piece of string through your mouth and have it come all the way out the other end. Yeah. And hold on to both ends of that piece of string and floss that through your whole body. The right? image of flossing to a whole yeah. level. <laughs> that would be gross. But it just makes the point that 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 um, that lumen, that tube, that hollow pipe, all the way through our whole body, um, is actually not. There's a, there's a, a, a contact with the external world sitting yep. internally within us, which brings back. We'll come back to that, no doubt, with this conversation yes. around immunity and how important uh, our relationship of our gut to our the rest of our body is as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's so important. So, you know, we've got this gut associated lymphatic tissue, which has got payers patches. The appendix actually make up um, part of that as well. So the appendix has a function, you're trying to tell me. Wow, deep breath, but... Yes, but don't oh, tell anyone. It's a big secret. It's been kept a really good secret for a really long time. But yes, the appendix definitely has a role to play. Um, the bowel, um, the lungs. The lungs is a fairly new one. Um, there were some experiments done um, uh, only two years ago, I think, and they found that blood entering the lungs, when it was coming back out again, actually had a higher um, level of platelets in it, which means... They were like, well, hang on, there's something happening to the blood as it enters the lungs. And so they are finding that the lungs have not quite the same as bone marrow, but similar, um, that it actually does, they think it does produce red blood cells um, and um, a type of stem cell that's in there that divides into platelets and red blood cells and things like that. So, yeah, lungs now we think, and they're they're still um, exploring this more, but, yeah, that's not been caught up in medical text yet. Yes, and did you know, interesting side fact, that when they make a medical discovery, it's about 30 years until it turns up in the institutions and it's taught? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Well, when you think about it, obviously, they make a discovery like that, and then there's so much of, well, hang on, we didn't know about this. Yeah. What more do we need to know about this? So the exploration probably has to go for a couple of decades before they feel like they have enough information to tell people, yeah... Yeah. This is exactly what's going on. Yeah, from a paper being published to it being taught in universities to medical mm. students, it's 30 years. Yeah, which is really interesting because you think about the lag time and the, the delivery of care. Yes. But it's always about sensitivity of, well, we don't know everything yet, so we don't want to say anything. Yeah, so that's until it, we yes. we know everything, but you never know everything anyway. Correct, um, you're always so going with it. So. You're better off understanding some of the function along the way so that you can adapt your behaviour. Yeah. Because, you know... Think about other things that, you, that affect the flow um, or the function of your lungs. So yeah. even exercise and the mechanical nature of movement of your lungs, you know, and how that may be impacting on the production of your red blood cells and platelets. Exactly. And I know we digress, but I say that because if you go in and ask your medical doctor who's been a medical doctor for 40, 50 years and is thinking about retiring about this, they may not know unless they're keeping up with literature and you know if you look at someone who's anemic you know one of the things we always look at is well why is the iron count low is it because they're eating foods that's causing micro bleeding in the gut is it you know especially in men and now we you know considering lungs and are they exercising correctly and are the lungs being activated to the right degree or are they smokers and all those kind of things and now things that we have to take into consideration absolutely that we were never taking in before so anyway i digress but I just wanted to make that point there. Well, I think just whilst we're on lungs, I remember reading a stat around lung cancer and the percentage of people that get lung cancer who have previously been a smoker. And it's really low. Yeah. Most lung cancers aren't from smoking. Yeah. Most lung cancers are from other types of pollution, pollution and toxicity yep. in the lungs. 
you think about things that you know I contemplate that where I live and you know yeah. spending more time in nature around clean air and definitely um, and then if if you think about that statistically what's happening in our world right now then you think about well uh, lungs are obviously playing a role in the function of our blood production and mm-hmm. immunity if there's so much toxicity going into our lungs um, the impact that that has on beyond just having lung cancer is also all these other functions absolutely um, well you know they, there was a study done and I think it was cyclists that cycle through city traffic a lot have a higher rate of lung cancer because they're breathing in carbon monoxide the whole time mm. so yeah. yeah I know that's crazy isn't it yeah and you know you think you're out being a cyclist and doing the right thing doing the right thing I had a friend uh, she was a friend of a friend who uh, was a cyclist who died from lung cancer and never smoked a day in his life but mm. was out as a heavy cyclist through city traffic it's amazing yeah I went to New York last year and then when I got home, um, I couldn't believe when I came out at Tullamarine Airport, when I walked out the sliding doors, out to the bus, how clean the air felt at Tullamarine. At Tullamarine? At Tullamarine. Wow. Uh, at the airport where there's so much traffic, so and much jet, carbon monoxide, yeah, and the jet but just comparatively to what it was like in New York. Wow. Uh, and you think about what conditions people live in sometimes. Yeah. You know. Anyway, we'll get back on to... So lungs were... Lungs, yeah. Any more... Any yes, more? well, we've got the bone marrow, as people, you know, probably yeah. uh, associate associate bone marrow with people with leukaemia and things. We have bone marrow transplants. Yeah. Uh, the skin, as I mentioned. And then we've obviously got all our um, immune cells yeah. that sit within and what make up um, what most of us know as the um, immune cells within the immune system. So we've got things like monocytes, lymphocytes... Neutrophils, eosinophils, basophils, macrophages, platelets, um, and then things like myeloid stem cells, and that myeloid stem cells break off and make things like platelets and red blood cells and, and that component. And then you've got lymphoid stem cells that make your things like B lymphocytes, T lymphocytes, and your natural killer cells. Mm. A lot happening. A lot happening in the immune so system. Let's just, I'll do a quick rehash of this for the listeners. So, uh, parts of your body that relate to immune function are. Your skin, your mucous membranes, um, your tonsils and adenoids, thymus gland, your lymphatic system, your spleen, gut-associated lymphoid tissue, your gut microbiome, your appendix, your lungs, your bone marrow, and your immune cells. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. No wonder we're going to have to do a deep dive in this. Oh my goodness, and the amount of... T- different types of immune cells. I mean, we could be here for two weeks just going yeah. through everything like yeah. antigen presenting cells and interleukin six, and yeah. you know, like we could be here forever. So we so won't go too deep on that. Let's stuff. Let's go through some very um, basic stuff first. So obviously, we talked about the exposure to a friend or a foe. Yeah, um, and uh, our natural de- defense mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So. I guess people would be somewhat familiar with the idea of um, natural immunity versus sort of humoral immunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the people listening, our immune system sort of, in one way when we get presented to a pathogen, we'll just react with our um, innate immunity that's just there. And then once we've been exposed to something, um, say chickenpox, uh, the reason we don't continue to contract that in the future is because our immune system remembers that exposure and then the next time it gets presented it can deal with it more efficiently and effectively 
Um, so that's a different type of immunity. Yeah, through the production of antibodies. Yeah. Now, I think that's an important thing because I, I know where we'll go later on in this conversation. Yeah, I've just read your mind, I think, yes. Yeah, yeah. so uh, with um, which type, when we look at these organs um, and we look at some of the function of these things, in terms of your natural defence mechanisms, your innate immunity, mm-hmm. uh, do you want to talk about some of the cells and some of the organs that uh, influence that? Sure, all right. Yeah, there's quite a lot there. But there's there's we'll, a lot there. We'll keep it a little bit narrow. Okay, so your innate immunity, so again, if you just get, well, I mean, innate immunity can be a few things. If you get like a a cut that, you know, maybe has something in it and then the body goes, oh, that's not so good. You know, that's a a quick natural immune reaction. It makes things called cytokines, Mm -hmm. which are inflammatory mediators. They get drawn into the site and they make the site go red and that actually draws in the white blood cells. Um... You have things called antigen-presenting uh, cells that sort of present things to the immune system and go, what's this about? And if the immune system goes, yeah, that's cool, we just have some white cells in. You've got your things like your macrophages. They're like your garbage disposal units. They come around and munch up. Um, things that aren't meant to be. Yeah, there. exactly. You've got your neutrophils, which, are the, which make up the bulk of your um, white cell count. And so, um, and then... You've got things like basophils and eosinophils that are really particular to more long-term infections. But your macrophages and your um, neutrophils are what do the bulk of a basic immune reaction to a basic cold or flu or something that happens on the skin. Um, And then your cytokines. And your cytokines are, like I said, inflammatory media. So they draw the white cells into the area. That also produces or increases platelet counts that, you know, if you've got bleeding or anything like that, it seals the area. Um, And then your immune system sort of through the macrophages and the um, neutrophils basically deal with localised infection fairly efficiently. Um, And that's kind of the base. This is a very basic overview. That's the end of a really basic Mm -hmm. sort of exposure. Then we've got big things like big viruses like, say, Epstein-Barr virus or... Epstein-Barr for people is... Glandular fever. fever. Yeah, or things like chicken pox or, you know, they're your next level down exposure. So something like that would come into the body. And then this is where your... So that's called like an antigen. Anything that enters the body that is foreign um, and the immune system comes apart and looks at, we call that an antigen. And the antigens are basically substances that cause an immune reaction. So an antigen can be a bacteria, a chemical, a toxin, a pollen, a virus, a parasite. Anything that is foreign to the body is antigen. So then you've got these antigen-presenting cells, and they take the antigen, and they go up to your T um, cell receptors, which sits on the surface of your cells, and goes, what do you think this is? And then it's your T receptor sites that go, "Mm, well, okay, and then they have... I guess like the immune system's like this big conversation and then the conversation can go so many different ways. So if you've got something like the Epstein-Barr virus, chickenpox, herpes virus is another really common one, that conversation is very different to, say, a scratch on the skin. So that conversation would go and that, that gets presented um, to the immune system and then we produce something called antibodies. So first off, the immune system goes, well, that's a virus. That's not meant to be there. In viruses, you're going to activate... Um, neutrophils and um, lymphocytes more specifically 
in viral infections. Bacteria, you might, you, you know, you get monocytes, you may get eosinophils in certain types. So you start to get these immune systems going. And then what happens is the um, body starts to produce antigens. So it, it almost maps out the virus and things like that. And then it basically feeds that information back to your T and B lymphocytes, if I remember correctly. And those sort of conduct the body to remember the infection. So if you get re-exposed to it, the chemicals that neutralize it, so you've got these like receptor sites act like a key in a lock on a body. So when you have an infection come in, viruses have like these really specific shapes to them. Like if you put a virus under a uh, microscope, they're like these crazy shapes. They've got like big triangle heads and these... They kind of look like antennas with tentacles and they're crazy looking. And viruses are like almost really complex geometric shapes. They can be like big dodecahedrons and things like that. And these viruses um, have like these um, receptor sites basically and they lock into the tops of the immune system. So the immune system kind of maps them out and then that takes that information it produces antibodies. And so antibodies remember what the infection is and remember exactly how to basically negate it. So say, for example, if you get exposed to a virus again, the body is much faster at producing the cytokines or the chemicals or the immune systems that need to be produced to neutralise the antigen. And remember, the antigen is the substance that comes into the body that shouldn't be there. So the immune system has a memory and that's what that, um, that long-term role of the immune system is to make a memory. Now, the problem with lots of things in autoimmune diseases and allergies um, and in tricksty viruses like the Epstein-Barr glandular fever virus and even herpes, which then can come back and cause shingles and things like that, is that, that sometimes things go awry in the immune system and that response or that memory of the immune system becomes faulty due to a whole pile of side things that happen through diet, lifestyle, and all those sort of things. So in a perfect world, the immune system should say, I remember that infection. If the infection is ever having a re-exposure, the body would produce the correct environment to get rid of it. But if anything um, happens in our lives, like stress, or not exercising enough, or not eating well, then that whole memory mechanism can be affected. And certain viruses and things can cause what we call, you know, an overactive immune system, where the immune system never actually gets to neutralize the attack. And so the attack stays what we call a chronic immune response, um, which is a really, you know, there's a lot of research at the moment going into chronic inflammatory and chronic immune responses, where that, the immune system never switches off. It continues to produce lots of cytokines and you know what happens is you burn out your white blood cell count so if you're looking at white cell counts people get these lower white cell counts because the body's always trying to keep up with it but they're always being disposed let's push or pause used on of. This. let's push yeah, pause yeah. on autoimmunity because we'll come back to that I'll come back to autoimmunity yep. so let's just I'm going to take I'm going to go back to something that you started um, just because for you and I obviously things make sense when you're talking about this but um, some of it may not to the to the listener when you spoke about at the very start of this rundown of um, inflammatory cells and so forth, you talked about cytokines mm-hmm. in relation to someone breaking the skin. Yep. And then that drawing blood to the area to bring mm-hmm. uh, white blood cells to the area to mm-hmm. help with the tissue healing and your defense mechanism. Yeah. That's inflammation. 
So yeah. the people listening, we didn't really cover that off at that point in time. Inflammation is actually an immune an response, immune response mm-hmm. and it's the first stage of healing and it's a really important thing. So a lot of people are scared of inflammation mm-hmm. and anti-inflammatory mechanisms in society like drugs or um, creams or whatever like Voltaren uh, will hinder your, your body's natural immune response. Yeah, um, it doesn't just turn off... You know, if you've got arthritis or osteoarthritis, sure, it helps reduce the pain, but it's turning off other aspects, other of, aspects of your immune system, for sure. Um, and then uh, we spoke a little bit about macrophages and neutrophils, um, and then one of the things we we sort of overlooked there was also natural killer cells. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that, I guess, also, just to clarify, they're the first point of... Um, immunity from a cell mediated type of immunity in that respect in that if you have a virus come in and your body hasn't ever seen it before your fastest most adaptive form of immunity are these natural um, mm-hmm. killer cells to try and adapt to that situation right there on the spot yep. to try and help nav- um, bring that down whatever it is yeah they don't care they just kill they just kill that's what yeah. they the whole the whole thing is if you're we've got a foe here we don't know what it is and then, the, then there's layers of complexity beyond that, though, is what you started talking about, is then your body has to then go, all right, well, we've, we've defended this, but, like, you know, what's happened as a response? Do we need more, create more immune cells now yep. to try and help make sure that we're, we're safe? Yep. And then also, in the future, we need to have a mechanism in place to, to make sure, sure it happen again. If, it, if we get exposed again, yeah. um, we're not just relying on these natural killer cells. We have a more sophisticated system mm-hmm. to try and help deal with this exposure. Yeah. Which is good. So I think that will provide a bit of clarity around that. Yeah. Um, it's so hard. It's like, how deep do you go? So I don't want to go too deep because yeah. like, the immune system That's is... That's okay. You go deep and I'll keep coming back to like All right, wherever we need clar- <laughs> clarity, where, I, where we feel clarity is required. Um so one other point of clarity some of these we have T cells and B cells we talked about they're different types of immunity obviously Mm -hmm. Um, and these when we talked earlier on about the role of different organs within your body your thymus and your spleen are really integral and your bone marrow with obviously the production of this stuff uh, thymus especially in children but yeah Yeah. spleen and spleen bone marrow and I think they're thinking lungs and so um you know, I have a two and a half year old daughter, and she has a bit of a cough at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I have to keep reminding myself that uh, along the way through her childhood, exposure to viruses and bacteria and so forth is essential for her immune development. Yes, uh, because um, that's part of that maturation of her immune system, and long long term will allow her body to thrive. Yeah. So. Um, the avoidance, like, it's hard things for parents to say, hey, I don't want to see her like that. But at the same time, knowing that it's helping her immune system develop is an important thing to consider. Well, that's, yeah, so B lymphocytes are your mechanism that have protection against infectious diseases. So they're the ones that remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they're, they're your humoral immunity. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then... That maybe that's maybe why. Um, I mean, I, I'm not 100% certain on this, but it's probably why your thymus is bigger when you're a child is because they're that's more involved in that you know yes. natural immunity. I think so. And yeah. then over time, once you know, because you're a new being, you haven't been on this planet, you get exposed to all these new potential pathogens, potential foe. You have to have this this innate immune system ready to work for you, and then over time, after you get exposed to all that stuff. 
your body then has this mechanism in place to remember it and create humoral immunity, um, you yeah. know, which is obviously generated through a number of different organs. Um, your spleen being obviously mm-hmm. pretty important in that. Um, yeah, so you're... Um, and that's why the thymus probably reduces over time because it's, yes. not as, it's not required as much because you have the extra layer of immunity that's now developed. Correct. And, you know, they say if you take... If you remove an infant's um, thymus gland, they're in all sorts of trouble. But if you remove an adult's thymus gland, it does nothing. It has yeah. no effect. So up until about the age of seven, I think, and then it starts to shrink. Mm-hmm. So, yes, de- yeah. definitely. So... Um, yeah, you're right, actually. Did you want to go back to saying that, you you know, talking about your daughter, you know, like, people are so scared of infection, but we want people to have infections because you want the immune system to learn. You want to create this really robust immune system. So going out and playing in the mud and germs, you know, the things that I grew up doing, I grew up on a big farm out, yeah. playing in the mud and doing all those kind of things is super important for immune exposure because you want to be exposed to lots of antigens and Mm. bacteria and things like that because it's like the immune system learns it's like i see the immune system as like this big conductor of orchestra and because it you know the immune system is a general word there are so many or probably more than anything i think it's one of the most complex systems in the body because there's so many cells and there's so many organs that you have to orchestrate and so if you're not having exposure to things it's like having the wind section of your orchestra never learning to play and then suddenly when something happens you say to the wind section of the orchestra play a symphony for me and it has no idea it's like what to do it's nothing it hasn't warmed up it hasn't started with some scales and some nice you know basic sort of stuff and so having exposure as children to Mm -hmm. basic sort of bugs and bacteria is so important so your immune system learns and becomes more and more complex and my belief is we're seeing more and more things like autoimmune diseases and and things like chronic immune responses and chronic inflammatory responses in you know 20 year olds i'm seeing you know i'm start I, you know i've had a spate of teenagers and people in their very early 20s being diagnosed with things like ms which we never used to see that till people were sort of th- mm. late 30s 40s and i'm seeing 16 year olds being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis yeah it's like what is that you know and it's you know, partly I believe it's we don't get this big immune exposure like we used to. Um, I digress there, but yeah, yeah no, I really I wanted to say on that, that point. It's a, I mean, it is a valid point because if we, if you think about it, uh, um, like uh, a layering effect, you know, yeah. that, that outermost layer, you know, you're more complex. I mean, the whole system is complex, but the more interference you have at a younger age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the more you kind of um, avoid having those exposures, it will lead to perhaps not always, but it may impact the development of those outer layers. And we know this because, you know, antibiotic use, for instance, yes, was quite, you know, has been criticised significantly, and there's a a lot of doctors are now becoming more reticent to give antibiotics because they know um, it can create more harm. Um, in the long term, if you continue to give that, because it does not allow the body's natural defence. Yeah. Um, and look, I just want to make a small point here that this is not going to be an anti-antibiotic discussion either, or anti-intervention. Well, I'll use myself as a bit of an anecdote. Last year, I, uh, not last year, earlier this year, I got an infection in my elbow. 
That's right, you did too. Right, and I had to go and have antibiotics because yeah. it was otherwise, it was inside my joint. Yeah, it, it caused all yeah. sorts of trouble. And the reason I got that was because one of my immune systems, one of my key components of my immune system had broken down, which is my skin. Yeah. I had a cut, I had a graze in my arm, I went for a swim in the ocean. Um, somehow a pathogen got in there. Yeah. We'd, we sort of, the, the doctor was really good. We sort of talked through potential mechanisms because yeah. I was interested. Uh, and we sort of come to the conclusion that going for a swim, it might have been in the water, but you have a lot of staph on your skin. We mm-hmm. have our natural, we have bacteria all over us. Yes, exactly. And, but going for the swim probably actually made my greys um, and the, um, uh, what do you call it? The... I've just had a mind a mind phase. <laughs> um, you know when you get a graze and you get the scab, scab, yeah, the scabby bit um, sort of um, got a bit um, mottled in the water. You know, of just course, like when you get yeah. in the water, so then all of a sudden the scab was able to peel off really easily. So my body's natural defense mechanism of my skin was wrecked. Inflammation brings tissue to the area. My body heals it with a scab. I go for a swim. The scab peels off and it exposes me to something getting into that. Mm-hmm. And so it gets inside my skin and within hours it was inside my joint. Within four hours I started having elbow pain. And then the next day but I was tracking it and then the next day it was obviously got to a point where I'm like, I have to actually go and have antibiotics here because I couldn't move my arm. Yeah, right. Um, so it's definitely not going to be an anti, um, this is not an anti-medicine conversation. And, and when we talk about kids having exposure, um, this is what we mean. We mean going out and playing in the mud, going yeah. out and... You know, catching the cold um, and, and, and allowing your system to develop itself um, provides strength. Um, provides the strength that we want um, in terms of yeah. a, an adequate immune response as an adult. Absolutely. It's the robustness that you can perform there. And sometimes, like you said, the immune system is either fatigued, especially in adults, if we've been under a whole pile of stress, we'll get to all of that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. or it doesn't respond the way it needs to, and so it needs help, and that's where things like antibiotics are great. But if you use antibiotics all the time, you break down your microbiome, which is yeah. a part of our immune system, um, and then the immune system has become lazy. It's like someone that goes and works out for you all the time. Sometimes absolutely needed. Sometimes you're like, I'm so fatigued, or I'm not working, I need someone to do that. But if you are working and someone comes and takes away your ability to fight infection all the time, you take away the natural innate ability of the body to fight so, infection. Um, we'll get into gut next. But just to wrap a, a little bit of that up, uh, because obviously if people want to know more about this stuff, we can um, they can come and speak to us or yeah. they can read some books, um, a lot of books. Yeah. <laughs> but with when we talk about kids too and that and that that you know initial exposure of, of stuff. The, the better their body is positioned to react is also really important. So yes. we know things impact on uh, the, the body's ability to deal um, in this regard. So we know that, for instance, um, eating incorrect foods, um, having a poor diet um, is going to impact on your child's ability to mount an appropriate immune response. Totally. Um, you know, adequate sleep. Um, and then things that impact sunshine. sleep, sunshine, right? Vitamin <laughs> yeah. D, getting outside. Um, how like um, how your kids primed before they go to sleep? Are they doing too much on computer games and things like that so that their quality of sleep is reducing? Takes them longer to fall asleep. You know, yep. these things are really important considerations because if the idea is to build a strong immune system, we need to have a good reaction. Um, and if you if you if you're going to go down that path of wanting your kid to get that exposure <laughs> and build that system. 
you need to um, also have <coughs> a, you know, a, like a thought process around how you're going to make your child strong in those circumstances as well. Totally. And just to give you the technical side of it of why it's so important in children, we were talking about the thymus gland and how the thymus gland shrinks around the age of seven. Well, T-cells, so you've got T-cells, T-cells and B-cells by the seashore. (laughs) (laughs) But your T-cells are your, like your quick responders, like your, they're not natural killer cells, they're different from that, but they are the ones that quickly go out and decide how to fight an infection. Your B-cells are the ones that build resistance, so they're the ones that learn. T-cells are called T-cells because they come from the thymus. So as we're children, the T-cells and that whole ability to fight quickly is a childhood thing. B-cells are learnt as we get as adults. Um, So if you're not exposing or children aren't exposed as much, T-cells don't get to have an activation or a run. And then it's T-cells that then work with the B-cells to build the resistance. So as you turn into an adult, your B-cells aren't built out robustly to have the resistance in there to infection. So you get sick faster or infections that would normally not bother an adult with, say, a really robust immune system bothers an adult that does. And so that's why um, having your child exposed to things, basic, even basic, like dirt and things like that as a child is important because it's those T cells which act super quickly and give the um, ability of the B cells to build out this long-term resistance. Yeah. That's the technical side of that bit. Yeah, cool. So let's talk about the gut now. All right. We started touching on that then. So the gut is obviously something that in the last oh, five to ten years has become very, very prominent in the delivery of healthcare around the world. Uh, and As naturopaths would say, it's we always say that health, that disease starts in the gut. It's like a core thing we yeah. learn, you know. Like, so and it is right. It's a pretty important thing. Uh, yeah. We spoke about it. How it's actually a, a connection with our body, with the external world. Yeah. Uh, and. It's like an, you can almost think of it as like an inner skin. Well, do you know, uh, someone described to me, uh, described it to me this way, and I love this. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to get some of this wrong because I'm going from memory here. But someone said that the human or um, erectus hominis, as we're known as, I think it's hominis, comes somewhere as derived from the Latin word for taste. Okay. And so being a, you know, erectus hominis or human beings, it's like we're tasters. And, you know, they talked about the immune system and the gut is that we taste life and we decide whether we're going to um, have a good relationship with what we're tasting or not. And so we think, you know, in our gut that our taste buds just sit on our tongue, but they've actually proven that there are taste cells the whole way through the gut and through the nasal passages, all sorts of things. And so we taste life. And so the whole gut passage which is exactly what marcus was saying it's a a tube that goes from our mouth to our anus um a hollow tube and we taste the whole way down through there and it's our whether we decide whether we like the taste or not flows into whether our immune system which sits behind that whether it orchestrates a non-reaction or a reaction to what we're tasting so let's talk about the gut uh from a very basic Immune, anatomy, anatomy immune, right? Yeah. How you describe that then? Because when I was at uni and we learned about the the gut bacteria, it was I very. I guess this is a very brief, crude way of yeah uh, describing it. Is that it was like a whole tube. Yep. And then the inside of that tube were. It's like you had um, a whole bunch of little things stuck on the inside of the tube. 
which were like your microvilli talking? Uh, no, like your bugs, your good bugs. Oh, your bugs. Okay, yeah. Right. Sorry. So let's just imagine as a we'll use an analogy, a big piece of piping. Yeah. And then you um, had some sort of liquid through the middle of that piping. Yeah. And then you poured sand through the pipe, and then after that, what you'd be left with was a pipe, and then all inside the pipe had this covering of sand, and those sand granules are meant to represent your bacteria or you know. Um, other microbes that are in your gut as well. Yeah. And so that's your microbiome. But it's obviously a little bit more complex than that. So I want you to talk a, bit, a little bit about the layer, the layers of your gut wall, uh, and then how that structure comes about and the, and the importance of each of those layers. So Sure. I, yeah. Okay, so I guess until recently, you know, like, well, not recently, like I say, as all naturopaths have been saying for a long time that, you know, disease starts in the gut. But... The microbiome has become such a huge topic, um, you're right, probably in the last five to ten years, and we obviously spoke about it and its role in neurotransmitters and, and health, but you know, it's got another huge role in um, immunity. So what happens is you've got all the way through the gut, um, and if we start with, say, the large and small intestine and, and the stomach, as we go through the lining, it's all of that tissue has to be semi-permeous in a way because say in the stomach you're secreting or at least releasing in chemicals to break down food in small and large intestine you're absorbing nutrients and so there's this conversation that goes on with what you're putting in your tube and then it being absorbed into the bloodstream so anything that's absorbed into the bloodstream that the immune system doesn't recognize or being broken down properly you're going to have these um, antigen presenting cells get active and then your immune system gets active so people may have heard of something called leaky gut so the first thing that happens is you get a breakdown in the barrier so if you think about this tube that runs through the middle of the body and you think about i don't know let's think of an old rusting pipe and as it rusts the surface of the inside of the pipe starts to flake and what happens is as it starts to flake you start to get pieces of food, for instance, that are not completely broken down. So most of your, your absorption should take place in parts of your small intestine and your large intestine. But if that happens earlier and the food particles aren't adequately broken down otherwise, due to maybe you're not secreting enough hydrochloric acid or maybe something called tight gap junctions, which I'm getting technical now, but tight gap junctions are the junctions, <coughs> excuse me, through your mucous membranes or your membranes that sit through the gut and they should be tight they're called tight gap junctions for a reason but if you are exposed to a lot of chemicals and you are eroding the mucous membranes those tight gap junctions become loose and so food particles that would normally not would be um big particles that would normally not escape through that tight gap junctions because the tight gap junctions are becoming looser You've got these big proteins of food that are escaping through that um, tight gap junction or through the um, gut, wall. gut wall, the microbiome, or the gut, sorry, not the microbiome, the gut wall early, and your immune system has no idea what it is. It should be happening further down the gut, going through your microvilli and through proper absorption processes. You know, your microbiome actually helps break down and it actually helps you absorb things like B12 and all those sort of things, but... If that's passing through that junction early, it, that becomes to your immune system an antigen. 
And so this is why we see so many things like food allergies. So Or a foe. Let's use the word foe. Yeah, foe. Yeah. We'll use the word foe. Like, oh, hey, what's this? What's, what's this? Come, what's coming What's this here? massive protein? Because the body, the body understands proteins. So when you put something into your body, let's say you put a piece of broccoli in there, that gets, you know, it goes through and it gets hydrochloric acid or... Um, you know, in your stomach, in your stomach, acid in your stomach, and, and then, then you've got your gallbladder will secrete some bile if it's fat, and you've got your pancreas um, producing some stuff, and so you've got this like it's called ch- chyme when it all gets together, or chyme, and it mixes up this lovely sort of mush that breaks down food particles, and so when it's getting into the small and large intestines, it's in these tiny little protein chains, and it's they have to be super small, and those little small protein chains are allowed through these tight gap junctions and. Um, absorbed up through your microvilli and things like that to be um, digested and the body knows that that's not a foe however if that process doesn't happen properly and the proteins that are escaping through the microvilli or the type gap junctions or in some people a lot of gluten flattens the microvilli and so you you have this flat microvilli like little hairs that sit um or sorry yeah like cilia or um so microvilli think of them as little I don't know how you like, like valleys coral. and troughs. Bit like like coral. coral. That's a perfect way of looking Bit at like it. Like coral in the ocean. Yeah. And so they get flattened in some people with gluten sensitivity and those sort of things. And so when that gets flattened out, they've got all these little tight gap junctions that sit around them. And so that's all flattened. You've now got this great big sort of pit where great big food proteins can, can pass through. And then the immune system goes, I don't know what that is. Now, it's still made out of natural substances, but the immune system doesn't know that because it's used to... Can you present it in a different, different way? way? Exactly. And so the immune system looks at that and goes, I don't know what that is. Therefore, foe. It's like someone talking a different language. Yeah. Like, I know it's a language. Yeah. But I don't know what they're saying. I don't exactly. know what it is, you know? <coughs> and then you've got a whole pile of things that go within that. Um, so I'll stay on the gut. Otherwise, I'm going to go sideways here. But most of your... Um, immune system as far as a lymphatic immune system actually sits in your gut Mm -hmm. and there's a good reason for that because that your gut is where you're going to be presented with more foe than any other place in the body because it's this great big tube right so it makes sense that you would have a whole pile of immune system or gut associated lymphatic tissue sitting with inside your gut that makes sense right Mm -hmm. because your gut is always checking to see is this foe or friend friend or foe and so and it's not just food, right? That's what's not on just your food. food. Exactly. What's on your food? Is it you know got sprays on it, chemicals? Absolutely. How cooked it? Um, you know, there's there's other things that it's got to detect, not just the, the proteins of the food. Absolutely. And is it you know contaminated? Has it got extra salmonella in it, or yeah. all of those sort of things? You know, it's got bacteria yeah. and bugs in there. So, I mean, it makes sense if you think about it logically why you would have most of your immune system sitting inside your gut. Yeah. And that is exactly that. So what happens over time is long uh, drinking things like a lot of coffee, um, long-term chronic stress, things that affect cortisol level. Cortisol is like an erosive to your gut lining and that causes these tight gut junctions to become bigger. So again, you're getting big food particles passing through that way. Um, Certain medications will break down your gut um, type junctions. So you've got, again more food particles processing or um, coming through there. Changes in microbiome. So microbiome actually um, help preserve the type gut junctions and work with that. So a change in microbiome, you know, if you're E. coli to um, lactobacillus ratios go completely wonky or one way, that affects the way that your um, 
food is broken down, which is affecting the protein chains that are being presented to the immune system. Um, yeah, so they're the basic. It's you know that's a basic thing of what happens there. So and let's go through these again because we've got there's a lot of information. There's there. so much. Let's just organise that gut stuff. Sure. So we have the out the the innermost layer, mm-hmm. which is the outermost layer of your gut. That doesn't really make sense. I know so, what you're saying though. So if if you think about it like a tube, there's air going down the tube, mm-hmm. and then if you go from the middle of the tube and you're going towards the wall of the tube. The first thing you would come into contact is your natural microbiome. <coughs> yes. Your good bacteria and any other um, <coughs> species of microbe that you need to have in your gut. Mm-hmm. And their role is to obviously break things down. Mm-hmm. Right? They break things down. They secrete. Other, they um, help secrete other chemicals that are required. Yep. Um, and then. Uh, as things pass from the upper layer of your your digestive system, in fact, I'll, t- I'll take one step back. Mm-hmm. So the upper layer of the digestive system, you actually have uh, digestive enzymes in your mouth. Mm-hmm. They start breaking things down, like amylase, 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 and amylase. Yep. So you know, and you have other. Um, so as soon as food goes in your mouth, it starts to get broken down. Goes in your stomach, hydrochloric acid breaks things down more. Yep. There's more di- and all yeah. the, there's a whole pile of things that go on in there. Then you go down through your tubes into your small intestine, large intestine, and along the way, all of these things are meant to happen in a sequential order mm-hmm. to try and get it to a point where when things get presented um, through your gut to the rest of your body, they're in a really nice manner, yes. and your body says, okay, "Presented in the way the body understands." Yeah, I can use this for whatever purpose I use. So when we get down into your deeper layers of your digestive system and your gut. You have your bacteria there. They're the first thing that kind of um, work on whatever's left. Mm-hmm. Then underneath those, you're talking about these tight gap junctions. Yeah. Right? And then this is actually a structurally integral part of your, your, um, your the gut wall. It's like the pot. It's this the pot. The, the inner layer the of your pot, yeah. right? So, exactly. And then if we were to drill little holes in the pipe, yeah. that's essentially like having a hole in the tight gap junction. You yeah. Know? Um, and then... Uh, instead of being a nice thick pipe that contains all the water, you know, if you think about it as an analogy like a plumbing analogy, it's a leak. Um, there's like little leaks coming out everywhere. Yeah. And then those leaks um, create a reaction. Just like if we were looking at a pipe and we saw a hole in the pipe, we'd be like, oh, oh no, we need, to, we need to put our hand over the leak. We need yeah. to respond to that leak. Our immune system says, oh no, something's coming through the hole. Yeah. We need to respond to that. Yeah. Um, and then that's what causes you know, a whole bunch of inflammation and um, immune reactions to that um, Absolutely. As well. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Much better than my complicated No, no, way. you're always good because you have the detail, right? So people understand what's really going on there. This is just obviously the summary of, of what you yeah, said. Yeah, no, no, that, um, that's a great way of putting it. And that's exactly what happens. So we get, and in most cases, like a lot of cases, we get, just don't think of it as one or two leaks. Imagine if you've got, you know those soaker hoses where you yeah. soak the gun? That's like a chronic leaky gut where, but you don't, you want your water to be going all the way through to the other end. And so where it needs to go isn't happening. It's like, it's yeah. leaking everywhere. That's, like a that's sprinkler. It's a sprinkler. Exactly. Yeah. That's leaky gut syndrome. Yeah. Right and so there. then your body has to then react strongly, you know, to that. Correct. Right? And Which, imagine if you've got that going on for years and years and years, imagine the burden that that puts on your immune system. And so you can imagine that if you get an infection and you've got a chronic leaky gut, your immune system is way busy doing that. Doing that, that it doesn't have the 
vital force or the energy to be dealing with chronic on top of that exposure from chemicals so you're breathing in through your lungs because you know you're living in a really polluted city or you're eating food that's um you know chemically laden so that's a whole other thing apart from just the whole basic leaky gut or you know you're taking a whole pile of chemicals and things like that that the body sees as an antigen or you know you're exposed to electromagnetics which is a whole other story you know there's a whole pile of things and so or then you get a basic viral infection and you wonder why you get so sick and it's because your immune system is already chronically burdened exactly and also you know when we spoke earlier about a cut on your hand the first part of the healing response is inflammation response so when you have uh if you have problems with these tight gut junctions and remember sometimes I don't know, this is the way that I've learned about it. It may be, uh, let's use some generic numbers, say um, one millimetre wide, yeah. but then a protein that's one and a half millimetres wide, because it can weasel its way into that gap, yes. can push through. Right? Yes, correct. Yeah. Which then tears and creates more damage. Yeah, which creates a greater inflammatory greater response. Greater inflammatory response. So then you have more inflammation. So if you think about the sprinkler analogy mm-hmm. and you have all this inflammation going on, and you start to think about why then if someone tries to do exercise and they can't do it, yes. or why they're in chronic pain is because their system has inflammation all the way through it because yes. it's trying to deal with this leaky gut scenario as well. Absolutely. Um, and that is why, ladies and gentlemen, the gut is so important in the immune response because it's generally the first place that becomes overburdened and overloaded um, and is chronically depleted because it's dealing with something called this leaky gut. 24-7 and that has massive on-flow effects and you know it is the beginning of you know I think a leaky gut precedes chronic a chronic inflammatory response um, and that chronic inflammatory response is your immune system's turned on all the time then so yeah. so we're going to go through a really structured conversation around the immune organs that we spoke about at the start mm-hmm. and then interventions or lifestyle measures we can take to try and make sure these parts of our body are functioning at their best sure we'll leave the gut to the end. In yep. fact, no, we'll do it now because whilst it's fresh in people's minds, let's do the gut it's now. Better. And uh, one thing that I found really interesting with my whole infected elbow experience yeah. was I obviously wanted to get my gut back to being healthy uh-huh. as fast as I possibly could. Yeah. Uh, and I know that I have some sensitivity due to some medication that I was um, I took for quite some time when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, that um, I shouldn't have been on. Yeah. Uh, so I was really keen, and when I read about it. I came across this really interesting website where they do stool sampling. It's a company that Mm -hmm. uh, you can send your poo off and they tell you all about the bugs in your gut. And what they, they, there was a number of research articles that they had uh, links to and then I read those and then then those research articles had citations to other research articles Mm -hmm. that I read. And basically what it came back to for me was that taking, they were suggesting that taking probiotics after taking my antibiotics might actually delay or in fact they didn't say it might they said it will delay the natural return of my natural gut flora yeah um, and then I went down this process of thinking about that because I've got other mates that have done uh, work in this area I'm not sure if you know who Kale Brock is mm-hmm. uh, so he went and traveled to Africa and then he measured his microbiome mm-hmm. before and after because where you are in life, we talked about kids playing in the dirt. It's your microbiome. Our microbiome yeah. will continually change to make sure we're protected against the environment where we currently live. Correct. So 
you know, taking the probiotics they were suggesting was um, making it hard for the return of your natural microbiome and that food, to eating the right food as a prebiotic was the best way to establish your normal natural gut flora yep. for where you are. I'm uh, so glad you raised it because we have lived, I've read some similar articles, but I read it different. I've read different articles to suggest that giving people a shotgun approach of probiotics can cause more harm than good because the gut has an innate ability to know exactly what you're saying to respond to the environment. And if you give probiotics a bit like antibiotics, it makes the body lazy in, in getting that. Now, sometimes probiotics are super useful and we know they, yeah. just like antibiotics, they make a really significant and important difference with people. But if, you know, we look at, like, there's a company that um, supplies um, to naturopaths, they must have now... 12 different types of probiotics and so unless you are like unless you're testing people's stools which is what i do to know exactly what's in there what should be in there what it should look like and then putting the correct one in you're guessing and sometimes it works and sometimes if you put the wrong probiotics in there you actually cause a cascade shift in that and the body's trying to rectify itself so it's funny you say that and, you know, I definitely can put my hand up and say in the heyday I used to give people probiotics. I'm Same. far less likely to do it this, these days unless I've done a stool test. Um, and I tend to go for foods, fermented foods, which we'll get yeah. into, and probiotics first to give the body enough fuel to do it. Unless someone's got a really damaged immune system and maybe an autoimmunity and things like that, I might people might need some help. But Or allergies, you know, LGGs. Allergies, yeah, LGG is great for that. But Jen, you're absolutely right, you know, it's... You're From changing the microbiome in yeah. there. Yeah. So with this discussion where we're going to go now, we talk about um, what things influence the natural state of the body yep. to be its, at its best in terms of immune. I yep. felt like that was a really interesting part to talk on because people could easily say, if you want good gut health, you could take a probiotic every no. day, which is not necessarily the case. Right? No. Food, surprisingly, as it may seem to some people, doing what we're meant to do as an animal. Yes is the best thing to do. Totally. And, you know, for the immune system in general, if you can get the gut right and you can fix that sprinkler hose that's got drilled holes in it, you immediately take a, a huge burden off the immune system. Then you can go around and plug up different organs one at a time or, you know, have an effect on the immune system. But you need to do, in my opinion, you need to do the gut first. And, you know, that is quite a a um, prince, hallmark principle standing of naturopathic medicine is we treat the gut first, mm. disease starts in the gut. And so you go there and you clean people's diets up. I mean, often in a first consultation, I don't tend to prescribe anything because I'm really anti this guessing thing. I run tests and things like that first. But the first thing I do is just clean people's diet up. Number one, because I know how important it is. And number two, I like people to see without taking any supplements from me, just how amazing a change in diet is and the effect that it has on people's health. Because... You know, I might not see people for three weeks or four weeks if I'm waiting for big tests to come back. And just in that time, they've cleaned their diet up, maybe reduced their stress levels. And the improvement on people can be up to 60 to 70%. And I haven't given anything. And they've just got the diet right. And they're far more likely to stick to the dietary changes and to make diet a key part of their recovery if they can see the impact that diet has. Because dietary changes is a lot harder than taking a pill. Yeah, it is, and it takes it takes a lot more motivation from the individual. Absolutely, I think with that, a really uh, just something we didn't highlight earlier that relates to this though is really important. In that we just talked about 
the whole, as much as we could, structure of the immune system. And we talked about, you know, T cells and then B cells and how your body has this natural immunity that we're born with and that we develop a, a you know, a more responsive immunity, more specific immunity. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that's words we didn't use at the start. Like yeah. our T cells are more non-specific immunity. They just kind of attack anything They attack anything, foreign. yeah. But we don't want to just attack anything foreign in a haphazard way. So our body has this sophisticated mechanism to develop more specific um, you know, immunity, which comes in the form of humoral immunity and B cells yeah. and so forth. That's so intelligent. And it's then, so intelligent. And our bodies are intelligent and we need yeah. to facilitate that intelligence. intelligence. Totally. So giving the body the food it requires yeah. to do the job it needs to do yeah. is the intelligent, is the cognitively Cognitive intelligent, intelligent thing to totally. do from a, from a human perspective and from a therapist perspective in order to help that innate intelligence of the body to do what it needs to do in the best possible way. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And so let's dive down into... Yeah, go first before I die. You dive. go more into gut? You, yes. Oh, you go first. Well, I want to go through the basics of how to improve the gut yeah, immune system because could. I believe if you start there then the rest is really specific to individuals. But anyone who wants to build and boost their immune system, if you think about just getting that central pipe working correctly and making sure that you're not causing chronic inflammatory responses due to these multiple leaky holes, that will set you in you know, a really good place to do that. And especially for children and things like that, having really good gut health for children will set their immune system up further down their life and reduce things like autoimmune diseases and things. So... My key tips with digestive system is, number one, short term, you need to remove any allergens. Now, proper allergens, you may want to test it. We can do things called, you can do the RAS tests and all of those kind of things. That tests something called an IgE reaction, which is an immediate reaction. Then there are things called IgG um, reactions. And IgG reactions, you know when you eat a food and then like 24 hours to 48 hours later, you're like, I had a reaction, but I don't know what it's to. That's an IgG reaction. And so... Um, they can, we can do them via food test. You can also do it via an elimination diet and then a challenge diet where you put things back in and you find out whether there's an immune reaction in there. But you need to remove the allergens because if you're still consuming the allergens, you're still continuing to basically take a jackhammer and drill holes through your gut. So that's the first thing is to remove known food allergens. Then the second thing is to put in things that will help your body, like Marcus spoke about, making sure that you get the right gut flora in there. And for me, that's fermented foods. And so I generally recommend uh, patients to have one to two tablespoons of fermented foods a day, like sauerkraut or kimchi. Um, I really like those. They're really nice. You can make them yourselves. You can do things like kefir. um, And if you've got dairy sensitivities, you can make it from like coconut kefir and things like that. Um, You have got things like kombucha. That's a drink for people. That's a drink. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit like kombucha, but it doesn't use... Kombucha um, is is tea and sugar. And some people with really sensitive guts, even with the low sugar stuff, kombucha is too much for them. And so kefir can be a better option there. Um, And then you've got kombucha. And that's the fermenting of the proteins within the milk and the the kefir. Oh, kefir, yeah. Yeah. Is that that what it is? I actually don't know the answer to this, so I'm just asking. Oh, yeah. it's um, How does the... the, It's um, a seed and it's a Saccharomyces boulardis. Yeah. So it's a yeast. Yeah. Um, and the way that it works and the way that Saccharomyces boulardii works, and we often use that in probiotics with people with chronic diarrhea and things like that, is it, um, it causes like a coating across your gut microbiome and it kind of coats and it suffocates um, 
bacteria or yeast under there that's not meant to be there but causes a great environment for your good guys to grow which is why kefir which is um yeah the the colonization i guess of saccharomyces boulardii this yeast and so you put a seed and you can grow um we like seed things like kefir water because it needs yeah. a little bit of stuff in there or people seed milk and you get this kefir milk um and it's that um saccharomyces boulardii or strain that um yeah it, it kind of acts like a a lime wash to your wall and it lime washes over the top of there um, and it, you know, while it's there, it only, the lime wash only works where you're taking it and it allows the right bacteria to grow and it suffocates out the bad guys is a very... Yeah, and, other, and it's like a competitive yeast, isn't it? Yes. So, you know, um, people listening may have heard of the phrase or the word candida. Yep. You know, so sometimes when... Sometimes, because um, we've talked about it in very binary sort of, you know, you have good bacteria, bad no bacteria. bacteria, but sometimes it's that what happens is... You're meant to have a certain ratio of bacteria, Correct. and then that gets out of whack. It's like E. coli. And, it's your yeah. biggest thing. You got E. coli. People think of as bad, but you need E. coli in your gut. Yeah, and like candida is meant to be there at yeah. some levels. Yeah, isn't it? I'm I'm 100 sure of this one. Yeah, and very small, small and it depends amounts. on the type of candida. Yeah, albicans and there's a whole pile of different kinds. So, then, so it's, it's an overgrowth. Uh, but yeah, when when it gets the opportunity, it's like a weed, mm-hmm. right? And then the weed spreads out. Mm-hmm. If you think about our good bacteria, our, like our gut microbiome in this nice, beautiful lawn, the last thing we want is weeds growing through it, and then yep. that's what the candida does. And then if and you go... candida th- drills, it's got the... If you look at the way candida looks, they've got these big tails on them, and they poke their tails, and so they make the leaky gut bigger. Yeah, and then if you go and throw a tarp over your lawn... Yeah. Um, ...and starve the candida of water and light... Correct. ...then the candida dies off. Perfect. Right? The, the perfect weeds, the weeds die off. From your lawn, yep, um, and then that's what Saccharomyces does. Yes, is that that's exactly what it does. And then once, once you then, because um, you can try and spray it with weed killer, yeah, you can try and pull the weeds out, but they're still embedded there and they'll keep growing back. Yes. But if you go and kill off the whole lot of it at once, and then you then redo the lawn, like yeah. reintroduce normal seeding, yeah, with the right conditions, yeah, sunlight and water, exactly. We're just a big pot plant with emotions. Yeah, you can re- <laughs> and we'll re-establish that normal balance that you require. Yeah. Um, I don't know, that's another analogy. That's oh, a I'm great analogy. You're I'm, very good at analogies, my goodness. It's on the spot. It's, it's hard. I know, that was, he just did that right on the spot then, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. I'm actually super making, impressed with yeah, that. that um, but that's a really, I think, a fascinating way to look at it too because yeah. it is this balance. But again, you have to trust the body's innate intelligence to recreate yes. that balance. You, our responsibility is to create the right environment. Correct. So you, anyway, go back to your kefir. Yeah, so make, we've got fermented foods, kimchi, sauerkraut. We've got things like, um, I have a preference for kefir, um, yeah, kefir over things like kombucha. But kombucha's not bad either and it's been um, well marketed and so people can do that. Just look for ones that are really low sugar. I think it's the Remedy yeah. um, brand. But even then, good. they're like, I think it, it, in the minds of the public, perhaps it's overinflated. Yeah. The impact that it'll have. So it really is largely a healthier version of a soft drink. Totally. Um, that's going to do minimal harm. Yeah. And may do some some good. Yeah. And it will do some good, but not as much as having things like kimchi. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, sauerkrauts and things like And I'm a huge fan of things like bone broth. Yeah. Thick gelatinous bone broth because the gelatin content in bone broth... Um, is one of the best things for healing that the holes in the pipe. Yeah. Um, 
gelatin and, and collagen is the building structure of what that tissue is made out of. So they're really nice natural ways. I mean, there's nutrition nutrients that do that as well, like zinc and glutamine, but, um, you know, just doing things like collagen and bone broth where you can get um, like collagen powders and take a big tablespoon of that and, um, you know, pop that into, um, you know, drinks and things. But, um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of all of that sort of stuff. So I'm collagen drinks, bone broths, um, what about um, resistant starches? Because when I was reading about my elbow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for those listening, I've largely been like yams kind of, and sweet potatoes, and yeah, stuff. And, yeah. Not, and even white rice. So we'll yep. talk about this in more detail. I'm I've mainly as a person been, you know, um, if I had to sort of Venn diagram my diet habits, most, and I bet he's done this by the way. Yeah, Maybe mostly. Yeah, I've, I've drawn it <laughs> mostly paleo style. You know, evolutionary type yep. diet. Um, and then with small amounts of other exposure to things, um, when, I'm, when I'm not treating myself, this yeah. is like my standard when I'm choosing to do the best I can be type diet, <coughs> things like brown rice and so forth. But uh, last year I went to a seminar which started to ch- change my perspective on this a little bit. And then when I got the infected elbow and read a little bit about it more... There was a lot of conversation around prebiotic foods and resistant starch being uh-huh. an amazing thing for that. It's great. So, we use large um, extract and things like that. Yeah, so white white rice and potatoes. I see. I um, prefer white rice over brown rice for this exact reason because yeah. white rice is easy to digest and yeah. it has exactly and that. Less irritable on the gut. Much less irritable. Yeah. So then, with because people obviously, you know, with white rice, the whole idea is this like high glycemic issue. You know, if you have uh-huh. too much. White rice, it spikes your blood sugar. It's a small amount. It's a small amount. Yeah, so um, we'll come back to portion sizes in a second. Yeah. But these resistant starches, essentially um, the way to go about it, if you heat, say, potatoes, Uh steamed potatoes, or cook white rice, and then you let it cool down, it actually increases the level of resistant starch. Every single time you heat it and cool it, it continues to increase that. And that makes it a prebiotic. So when you stick... When you throw that in your mouth and you swallow it and it goes down to your gut, all the little good bacteria, all the grass that you want to grow in there, that loves that. It's like the, it's, you know, heaps of food for that as well. On yeah, top it's of, like your blood and bone. Yeah. And your garden. Totally. Not yeah. your blood and bone, it's your like body. It's like fertilizer, yes, you yeah. know, for your natural gardening. So yeah. Then. Um, so the island, uh, it's the island uh, Pacific diet is they're really big into that. So they use a lot of yams. Mm-hmm. For that, yeah, um, and a, and they eat a bit of rice and things like that. So I mean, I'm I love paleo diets, and some people actually have rice allergies. So that can make it tough if they've got autoimmune diseases. Yeah. But sweet potato and y- yams and potato, and like you say, the heating and cooling of it. Um, I'm a huge fan for those. Yeah, things. Yeah, I was so great that a couple of weeks after that because I was just eating my ratio of eating that stuff significantly increased compared to normal, <laughs> um, and I loved it. Yeah. Um, but you know, again. There are issues with eating too much of that as well. Yes, um, definitely. But uh, you know, like it's all, it's all in balance. So, whilst you, we've talked about things you can do to try and help strengthen your gut, there. Yeah. Um, what about preventative things as well? In terms of, um, we just said we talked about portion sizes. So something yeah. that I find really fascinating is um, the size of meals that people consume, and then the stress that that places. <coughs> I know personally that when I have too much food in my gut, I can feel an increased inflammation in my body Yeah, right? well, when I eat too big of a meal. Exactly. Let me just finish on the um, what to do for it. So you've yep. obviously got those really specific things, but then nutrient-dense foods. 
and low inflammatory foods like turmeric and ginger are anti-inflammatories. Garlic's great because garlic tends to wipe out opportunistic bacteria but helps good bacteria. Um, apple cider vinegar um, can be really great as well. And then lots of green leafy vegetables, high vegetable um, intake is fabulous as well. So they're all my mm-hmm. things that I would get people to go away and, and do to really help with yep. gut microbiome, cool. anti-inflammatory immune stuff. And then, you know, like portion size. I mean, you're right, you know, like we spend, and I don't want to make it this all about digestion, but we spend a lot of our time digesting, and digesting takes up a lot of energy. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that they've done research on, I'm just going to jump straight into it, is intermittent fasting. Yeah, good. I was going to go there next. Thing yeah. Then, so. so I'm going to skip portion size, and I mean, people do well and truly overeat, but one of the things that you know has really got traction at the moment and something that I use a lot in my autoimmune patients is intermittent fasting. It's something I do myself. I'm on a fast right now. So intermittent fasting stimulates stem cell production is one of the things that they've done. It also reduces inflammation and it also rests that pipe. So you can imagine if you give that pipe a big break, it can actually then heal itself. itself. But if you are pummeling water down there all the time, you've got to imagine that water is always flowing through those holes. And so how can your immune system plug it up? Because it's always got a resistance on it. It puts a patch on there, but it gets pushed off. It gets blown straight off straight away. So if you're doing something like intermittent fasting, you allow your body the ability to heal. So intermittent fasting can work so many different ways. You can do it, you know, the is it the 5-2 rule where people fast on the weekends or have low calories during the week? The way that I do intermittent fasting is I do an 8-16 rule. So I eat between an 8-hour window. So I'll eat between 12 and 8 at night. I actually generally, it's long, it's shorter than that. I would eat between, I wouldn't eat anything after 7 o'clock at night generally unless I'm working late. So um, generally it's a noon till 7 p.m., 8 p.m. window or a 10 till 6 and then I fast the rest of the time. And I do that every day. That's the standard thing unless I'm away at a conference where I'm eating lots of food and yeah. got no sleep. But generally, I'm doing a 8-16. And that's what I find for people with big, um, complex, um, chronic conditions like autoimmune um, conditions, which is what I see the most of. I will do a daily 8-16 um, rule. But you can do things like 12-12. You can do people where you just do a 24-hour fast every now and then. You know, you've got these um, places that do big water fasts and things like that for people with really chronic diseases. There's a whole pile of different ways you do you it. You just listen to your body. That's you, what I do. Yeah, yeah. That's, so, like, now that I'm too. like, you know, I used to do more prescriptive, so I'd try not eat until 2 p.m. So, yep. I'd eat dinner at, say, 8 p.m. Yeah. I wouldn't eat again until 2 p.m. the next day. Yeah. And then um, that became easier the more you do it. Yes, it does. So then now, sometimes, if I've, if I've eaten, uh, we, had a, we had a party here on the weekend for the yeah. practice, for fifth year, and we had uh, some beautiful vegan Snickers slice, which is delicious, but still probably not the healthiest thing to yeah. eat. There would have been some sugar in there and yeah. so forth. Um, so I ate too much of that because um, yeah. it was so yum. <laughs> uh, and then... Uh, on the weekend, I probably didn't have my best diet, so then I just go into this phase where I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to try and be as hungry as I can be, for yeah. as long as I can be, and allow my body to burn off all the things that yeah. you know I've added in, yeah. allow it to have a rest, allow it to heal itself, yeah. um, and then hung- when, you can, when you can approach hunger, hunger differently, I think it makes it easier because I'm not sure whether you've dealt with this with your clients who do intermittent fasting, they're always counting down that minute. 
until they get to the 8 and 16. When is my window open so I can eat again? Yeah. But that does fade over time, doesn't it? It doesn't take long. It does, yes. Some people struggle more with that, whereas... I try, I try to reverse engineer it and say, yeah. well, how long can you go? Yeah. Like, how long can you keep going without eating? You yeah. Know? And then when you eat, if you're going <coughs> to eat, if you're going to say, eat some sushi, instead of getting two hand rolls, just have one. Yeah. And then see how long you can go again. You know? And they and did then, some great studies on being hungry. And I'd, I know this is a bit of a Wim Hof thing, you know, they, they talk about, we just get so used to our temperatures always set for us. And like, you know, they wanted to re- listen to this great podcast called rewilding yourself where they spoke about that humans should be called erectus hominis fragilis because we're fragile like yeah. if an ice age came we couldn't survive it we're used to yeah. feeling satiety or feeling you know like we can eat whatever we want our body temperatures are controlled for us in climates and so doing something like making yourself hungry that's what our ancestors used to do and it does rel- and i'd have to go and dig it up but i know i read that it, it releases a whole pile of really important um, chemicals and especially neuro neurochemicals and neurotransmitters that actually benefit our health. So sorry yeah, to really, interrupt you. I'm actually it. really hungry now because I've got <coughs> today's um, <coughs> banana and a mandarin. Uh, yesterday I had a pretty active day. I went for a run and didn't really eat a lot yesterday either. Yeah. Um, I had fish for dinner, which isn't exactly the most filling thing. Mm-hmm. And salad. And so, uh, but it's good though. I, I enjoy being hungry because I know that there's a lot of things that occur off the back of that. Mm-hmm. And if you frame it positively, mm-hmm. um, fasting almost has a, a connotation attached to it of like um, restriction. Yeah. You're like restricting yourself from doing something that you want to do you yeah. know, versus doing something that you want to do. So instead of calling it fasting, whilst I used to call it fasting, I haven't come up with a really good word for it, but I like the hunger challenge. Like I, I like what it's doing for my body. You're so a hunger games man. Yeah. <laughs> and so for instance, just even burning, burning <coughs> fats and... and, and this actually all started for me thinking, this is quite some time ago, maybe almost 10 years ago when I, I trained for a marathon. And then, you know, when you're doing your long runs on, on uh, in your training, you burn through your glycogen stores. Mm-hmm. And so you have to start burning fat for energy. And then my coach, he s- suggested to me that uh, to not try and not eat after I finish my run. Yeah. So I'd come home from a run, I'd have a sip of water. And then I would see how long I could go for all day without Wow. Eating. So I might have run for three hours mm-hmm. and then haven't eaten anything. Woken up, ran for three hours. You don't necessarily feel like eating straight away right after that anyway. But yeah. then, you know, half an hour later, the hunger pangs come. But the longer you can stay in that status of fat burning, the more efficient your body becomes at burning fat as a fuel source. Yes. So it was, it was quite a good challenge, you know. It was like, yeah, yeah how long can I go? How long can yeah. I go? And that's a really good approach, I think, with intermittent fasting too. Yeah. Being hungry, when we teach kids they have to finish their play, it's keep shoving food, so it becomes part of your your consciousness that it's not okay to be hungry. Yes. But it's perfectly fine to be hungry. In fact, it's great. It's great for our pancreas to have rest. Yes. In fact, there were studies they did on uh, mice recently where they were, um, who'd been made type 1 diabetic, and then they fa- made them fast. They forced yes, fast. Yes, I remember them, that. And their pancreas healed. Yes. So then they started producing insulin again. So yeah. Uh, this is you know an evolving area of research, but maybe um, allowing our body to heal is a really good thing. So that's the way I approach the fasting: is yeah. how long can I go? But you know, if I was tomorrow, I'm going for a run at lunchtime. I wouldn't be doing the same level of fasting I'm no. doing now because the whole idea of going for a run is to increase my fitness and be yes. healthy. If I'm ineffective in my run because I'm I've overfasted, I've overfasted, then that's not a great thing for that either. No. You know, and then I'll have to work. 
in the morning and afternoon around that run. So, you know, and like organising your week appropriately yes. and listening to your body is essentially a different way. Of oh, definitely. In the days that I'm in clinic, I don't tend to fast because, you know, yeah. or if I'm doing, yeah, if I'm like gymming, like I'm going to gym today. So since we finish here, I'll eat, but I'll eat, you know. So you, you do. You're absolutely right. You have to listen to but, your But, you body. know, that's a high level of sophistication of fasting and saying yes. it's a lot easier for people sometimes just to plug in yeah. five two. Or yes. 816 yeah. you know 1212 yeah. it's just simple I can do this right now I just follow this rule yeah. and that's better than doing nothing yes um, and then from there you can fine tune yeah um, and I want to add to fasting you know so people don't think oh that sounds like a, a sophisticated way of saying eating disorder no when you're not <laughs> fasting you're eating really high quality nutrient dense food and it is yeah. um, you know a paleo sort of thing some people do the fasting where they eat whatever they want around that. I'm like, if you're work, working with chronic immune conditions like autoimmunity, you, when you are not fasting, you're eating nutrient-dense food, good quality fat, because as we know, fat um, is a huge part of healing and immune system and, and all whole pile of great things. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, intermittent fasting. And in nature, if you look at animals, when they get sick, they stop eating. That's, mm-hmm. what, that's what they naturally do. And well, so kids do it. Kids do it as well. They just like, they go off their appetite. Like, yeah, because yeah. it allows their body instead of having to digest food and divert, and divert energy to clear the gut. Yeah. Then their immune system has that energy. Yeah, and the immune system is not then been overrun in the gut, and you know you've got that gut associated lymphatic tissue that's not suddenly been burdened by having to deal with the foods. It can actually help work with other immune systems. The other things that studies showed that intermittent fasting did was that it balanced cortisol levels, it reduced interleukin-6, interleukin-6 is a big part of this cytokine um, immune reaction, and um, it reduced tumor necrosis factor alpha as well, the stimulating stem cells that I spoke about. So, so on the eating sort of thing, I think it's really important just to have a, We're going to do one of these on diet as well. Yeah. But one thing that I, I, I find a fascinating question to ask people is what is the purpose of eating? <coughs> why, do you, why do humans eat? And <coughs> invariably, people come back with an answer of energy. You know, a lot of time we need to eat to have energy. That's the most common thing. But it isn't, it's nutrition. It's nutrition. We, we need nutrients for our body. Energy comes with those nutrients. But yeah. we need nutrients for our building blocks and to regenerate and rejuvenate our body. And um, you only need a certain amount of those. You mm-hmm. don't need to have too much of it because no. otherwise it just comes out the other end anyway. Exactly. So, it's just waste product. Um, you know, fasting allow the whole purpose of fasting <coughs> is to allow your body energetically to divert attention to other things correct and heal itself yeah but you still need to accompany that with the right amount of nutrients correct. in order to sustain your body and rejuvenate and regenerate things and i'm a big believer if you eat a nutrient-dense diet you will eat less food it's funny when i switch clients to organic diets or high vegetable intake and they say we feel fuller faster and that's because if you are on say a pasta diet you have to eat lots of lots of pasta to get your zinc quotient for the day. Yet yeah, if you so eat two cups like, of steamed vegetables, you'll get it. You get it straight away. I use numbers to like I use white bread, pasta, the same mm-hmm. thing. But you know, one white bread might have a hundred units of energy and one unit of zinc. Yeah. But you need ten units of zinc, so yes. you end up getting a thousand units of energy. Correct. For your ten units of zinc. Yeah. And then if you have you know um, cup of spinach, cup of spinach. Yeah. You might get uh, ten units of zinc. And only 10 units of energy. Correct. And so um, you get your requirement, you feel satisfied, yes. and you don't have this overconsumption of energy. Absolutely. Which is in our Western world, creating yes. the problems we have with 
excess energy consumption, storage, and way of fat, obesity, and so forth. Yeah, yeah, inflammation. Yeah, yeah, inflammation. that's all of that is mm. absolutely right. So, for gut immune system, they're my you know getting the gut right. Did you want to say anything else about gut before I? Because I really want to give everybody what signs of weakened immune system is and what causes it, and then go through all the ma- yeah, major. Yeah, so I don't ones. have anything more on gut. That's pretty good. Okay. Um, so I think we can move on to some of the others. So let's do um, the gut's a big one. The gut's huge, and we'll it's and, and a couple said, other things really quickly. Right. Sure. Um, so people, we we touch on each of these systems. So one of them was skin. Yep. So uh, one of the things I find interesting about skin is that people always think about it about it as a barrier, like it's yes. like a fence stopping yep. you to get to your neighbor's property. Yeah. But it's ultra absorbent. Yes. You know how does a how does a nicotine patch quell the yeah. pang of a nicotine urge in the brain, it gets absorbed through your skin, yeah. into your bloodstream, goes up into your brain, yeah. and then it has its effect. So we know that the skin is ultra-absorbent. So if we want to make sure our skin's healthy, we've got to be really careful what we um, come into contact with uh-huh. um, uh, is you know in terms of products, chemical products. Totally. You know, um, are we using too much antibacterial stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, are we using harsh chemicals in our soaps, in our um, hair, hair products? Um, are we using um, dyes in our hair that are like causing problems and getting absorbed? You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes in there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, reducing the toxic load on skin from an exposure point of view, I think is really interesting. And definitely, while you're talking about skin, I want to talk about deodorant. Yeah. Because people slather themselves with aluminium underneath their armpits, and guess where a whole pile of lymph nodes sit? Right there. Yeah. And so you absorb it right through into your lymphatic system and then your lymphatic system. So your lymphatic system is like the garbage disposal unit of the body. It's the one that it takes all the toxins and then um, moves them out of the body and, and, you know, cleanses. And so you overburden your lymphatic system by, you know, and skin, you know, is part. I think we actually see skin as part of the lymphatic system or a secondary part to it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're... Anything that you put on your skin is going to have to get filtered through the lymphatic system. And the lymphatic yeah. system goes through the brain. Yeah. You know, it sits on that. Well, not through the brain. It sits on the outside. But, you know, you're potentially exposing mm. your body to all of those things. They only found the lymphatic system on the brain two years ago. Yeah. Ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. I know. It sits right up in, you know, under it goes the, over the, yeah, over the, the skull. And it goes over the top of it, though. So we know that. In, they have it internally around Inside the skull as well. Yeah. They found it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, like inside yeah. the skull, it sits right on the inside of it. And that's, yeah. you know, they didn't even know it was there. It's crazy. Oh, that's amazing they didn't know it was there. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, um, that's a good one. Um, is there anything, anything, I, I don't have anything to add on this, but you might, um, in terms of promoting a good balance on your skin. Yeah. Like topically, things you can do to try and help increase the balance of. Yes. Um, so, there's a couple of things I have there. Number one, I love dry skin brushing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stimulates, because your lymphatic system sits right sort of under the skin. And, you know, if you ever have had a lymphatic drainage massage, they don't press very hard. They do this very light upward stroking motion. And that's because that's what stimulates the lymphatic system that sits right under those that, that area. So dry skin brushing is a great way to promote active skin health. It improves the lymphatic system. And you brush with a hard bristle brush with dry skin before a shower upwards towards the heart. And then you go and have a shower after it. The other thing that I think promotes um, good skin health is not to overshower. Um, again, overshower with soaps. Let me get that right. Because you have got a whole pile of microbiome on your skin, right? So if you are using heavy laden soaps and shampoos and 
Pino Clean, if you're washing Pino Clean, there's a problem. But, yeah. you know, if you're doing all of that, you're basically removing your natural healthy microbiome off your skin every day. So, you know, when I shower, I use just water um, and then I use like totally natural deodorants and things like that. But I don't tend to use soaps and things like that in there. Not only does it strip your body of its oils and its natural um, microbiome on the skin, um, but for vitamin D, vitamin D is fat absorbent, right? So if you've been out in the sun and then you go jump in the shower, you actually wash vitamin D off before it's had a chance to absorb through the skin. So I'm huge on not over washing all of that kind of stuff. Same with hair, you know, they now know, you know, I've got a couple of clients that went push through the barrier and they don't wash their hair with any shampoo or conditioner, just water. It takes three months, but their hair is beautiful. It's just all natural oils and things like that. Um, and the body produces it all by itself. And it's the same with the skin. That's an interesting barrier. I can hear a, a lot of I can um, people, taking, people listening going, there's no way I can do that. Yeah, and look, I tried it. I didn't wash my hair for three months, and I just couldn't get it to get to what some patients have. And they've got this amazing glossy hair, and it just produces its own oils. And you can do it in apple cider vinegar. That's a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, you know, like trying to wash everything off your skin less and all of those kind of things and then dry skin brushing and then using natural products you know like on my skin I use coconut oil that's my moisturizer I don't use anything else and then on my face you know I am using you know like rosehip oil and things like that I don't put any chemicals on my skin because I know how much it absorbs same with shampoo and conditioner I use a totally natural one so um that is my big thing with skin and then getting it exposed to sunlight I'm not talking burning it. I'm just, you know, your regular exposure, regular small dose exposure to as much of your skin as possible. Yeah. Um, Really important. So the next one was, um, we'll deal with sort of these, I guess, a little bit in conjunction. I think we could do um, mucous membranes, tonsils and adenoids. Yeah. Upper respiratory. Upper respiratory. So if you're someone, so to frame this out, if you're someone that's getting recurrent tonsillitis, um, you know, kids with adenoids and needing grommets and chronic ear infections and all those kind of things, and it's that part of the immune system that needs some help. Um, my big tip, and especially in children, and it tends to work nine times out of ten, is to go off dairy. It mm. seems to be that those tonsils and adenoids inflame in dairy allergies yeah. um, in children, and they can't break down the milk proteins. Um, yeah. So that's a first a great way. Mucus so, forming foods. Yeah, mucogenic foods. So let, let's dive into that a little bit more because that's a really interesting thing because you can also hear people thinking, oh, you know, you've got to have dairy for calcium. Yeah. I personally have, you know, um, I've had a few robust discussions with some other people. Humans are the only animal on the planet that drink another animal's milk. Correct. And continue to drink milk after they wean. Correct. Um, so... I think that's a from an intelligent, innate intelligent perspective. Just common sense. It seems that it's, you know, um, a little bit amiss with what we're meant to be doing. Yes. Further to that, if I was on a deserted island and there was a cow there, and I was on my own and I was hungry, even though I've been fast, I'm alright. But after a few days, I'm hungry. I'm not looking at that cow going, I'm going to suck on its teeth. No. I'm going to kill that cow and cook it. Correct. Right? And it's more natural to think like that. Um, yes. For some people, not yeah. a few. Yeah. Plus, the cow would have to have a baby there for you to be able to do that. Yeah, so true. naturally, you know, like the whole farm... Anyway, don't tell, start me on that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it's not necessary. I guess, it's not necessarily essential, okay? No. Um, so that's one point. Yeah. The second point is that um, what is actually occurring there that allows for that 
um, this is more for you to answer than me. Mm-hmm. What occurs when people have dairy and it goes into their mouth yeah. and into their system that causes the reaction to produce more mucus? Yeah. And then that mucus then obviously coats things. Correct. Um, and then that the flow-on effect is that you know you don't get you can't react normally to your yeah. exposures. So. And where you get swollen glands right yeah. up the top of where you're intaking things. So yeah. let's go common sense. If you're drinking a lot of dairy and I take someone off dairy and suddenly their tonsillitis goes away, people go, it's a food allergy. But you go, well, why did the immune system do that? Why is it producing more mucus? Well, mucus is to protect cell surfaces, right, yeah. from proteins that are not meant to be there. Yeah. So the innate response of the immune system is goes, not meant to have another species, milk per se, produce more mucus. And then, you know, that mucus then causes a, you know, a swelling of the tonsils and the adenoids and things like that. And the tonsils become larger to produce more of that stuff because you're drinking more milk, right? Mm. So, I mean, that's clue number one of why yep. that happens in the first place. But interesting with dairy consumption is dairy is, and we're the, one of the only species that takes in more calcium-rich, we excrete more calcium than we take in. So dairy and dairy-forming foods, and there's a whole pile of foods in here, but they are highly acidic foods. So calcium is a um, de-acidifies the body. So if you have a really high acid diet, you're going to draw calcium from the bones to neutralize the acidity. Mm-hmm. If you consume a lot of dairy, you're going to piss out more calcium than you take in. The other thing about calcium in dairy is it's highly bound in fat molecules and it's not readily available. You get more calcium from a cup of sesame seeds, or not even a cup, like a couple of tablespoons of sesame seeds than you do from a litre of milk. Uh-huh. That's bioavailable into the body. Yeah. So the whole we need calcium... Let's explain bioavailable. So the, what the body can utilise. So it's a bit the same as we were speaking about before. You can have a teaspoon of dairy and a teaspoon of um, sesame seeds, and you're going to get... 50 times more calcium in the teaspoon of sesame seeds than you're going to get in the teaspoon of, of milk on the t- mm-hmm. yeah so because the calcium in the sesame seeds is far more bioavailable meaning it's more easily utilized and easily read, um, ready for the body to break down the calcium in milk is very hard for the body to extract due to the fat it's bound in fat so the body has to wrestle with the calcium to get it out of the fat so you don't absorb a lot of calcium from milk so yeah, we just you're right. It's I mean, a fascinating. This is a fascinating thing because I th- I think sometimes there's multiple variables that affect things, but um, Western countries tend to, tend to be the biggest consumption mm. consumers of dairy yes. based products, and um, and the, yeah. osteoporosis is such a yeah. So there's such interesting. I mean, I did a TV show. And there's inactivity and other things yes. that can contribute to osteoporosis, but it, so you can't directly link the two. No, well, I you, do find it fascinating. There's, you know, there's been a study, you know, the highest consumers of dairy in the world, which has been like uh, some of the Norwegian countries where they eat a lot of cheese and stuff, have the highest rate of osteoporosis in the world. Then you go to the Baha women. So they did a study of Baha, the Bahrain women, I think, in Africa. They drink no milk. Um, and they drink, they're eating like nuts and seeds and vegetables. No osteoporosis. Mm. None. I guess you can look at the, the, the one caveat. I, I see the physiological mechanism, biochemical mechanism, how that occurs based on what you were just saying. Yeah. Right? And I understand that. The only caveat I would say is that, you know, in those uh, higher neuro- European countries that have long 
dark days. They do. Low yeah. vitamin Home D. D. Yeah, which we now know. Yeah. Yeah, strength. And but Australians are outside working all day. Yes. And so their bones have to be strong. Australia's got a very high osteoporotic rate. And guess we what? Do. We've got a lot of sunshine. In fact, at one stage, Australia had the highest rate of rickets, which is a childhood disease mm-hmm. due to uh, lack of, that's a more a D, vitamin D thing. Yeah. Because they're not getting exposure because of all these covers that we've got our children under at school. But yeah, back to the immune system. So tonsils, adenoids, upper upper respiratory. Removing dairy seems to be very effective Mm -hmm. as as a basic thing. Obviously everything we spoke about with the digestive system and getting that right. Then um, yeah, wheat and gluten for some people is a secondary allergy. Mm -hmm. Um, I find dairy is very specific in that. Um, If you've got um, children with learning difficulties and things like that, gluten um, seems to be one, and yeah. that works through the gut immune system, that gluten and dairy coming out. Um, Can we just touch on healing timeframes too? Because we've yeah. been talking about removing things. Yeah. Obviously, it's very situational, you know, very specific to the individual, how long it's going to take them to recover. Yeah. But some, for some people, obviously, removing dairy can have a pretty drastic effect within days. Yes. Other people can take months. Yes. Um, I think expectations are really important around that because if people perhaps listening don't understand tissue healing timeframes for um, for your gut. You know, if I if I strain a hamstring, most people know a couple of weeks, two or three weeks. You know, um, if I break a bone, six to eight weeks. With these things, it's quite you know ambiguous. Three months for the gut. Yeah. Yeah. Minimum three. Months. Minimum three months. Yeah. And, if and possibly yeah. <coughs> longer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely for the gut. And and even for a food challenge, you have to have a food out for a minimum of three to six months before you can re-challenge it. Because if you take it out for a week, the immune system hasn't unforgotten the immune challenge. And mm-hmm. so um, it's built up antibodies in a sense. So, yeah, yeah, you have to take things out for a while to challenge them properly to know yeah. if you've got a proper allergy. What I think would be really good, do you want to go through what signs are of a weakened immunity and I'll go through all of the or do you want to go through organ no. by organ no we don't no because some of those organs are not as I mean we're not going to really talk about influencing um, your thymus or spleen with lifestyle habits I mean that's a general yeah well, that's more general yeah you know eat well, move well you know <laughs> yeah and there's all all this singing um, uh, like the birds yes know, uh, help out thymus but no I think um, should we do a general overview because then I can cover all of it in big sweeps I think yeah so I think um, what where, what were you suggesting we do well now? I wanted to take everybody through signs of what a weakened immune system looks like let's do that and next. then what can weaken an immune system and then I'm going to do the whole of how to clean up the immune system right. in one big go That's, that sounds magical cool because they, you know, what you know, taking dairy out won't just improve th- of the thyroid, of the thyroid, tonsils. It'll do a whole pile of other things. So, all right. So if we go over signs of weak immunity, so if you're sitting there going, do I or do my does my child have a you know a weakened immune system? Things to look out for are numerous recurring infections. So if you're getting colds and flus all the time, now a good one cold a year, I'm a huge fan of. Should last three to four days. So I've got one at the moment. I ran a fever. So you know when you're a kid, you get a fever? Fever is the sign of your immune system kicking in. It means the immune system's going in. And when you raise, um, when your body temperature raises, it's re- um, releasing a whole pile of really cool cytokines and immune stuff that burns off an infection. As we get older, we notice as adults, we stop getting fevers, right? Now, that's the sign of vitality. A fever is a sign of a good vitality. So 
I got sick a couple of days ago, but I ran a fever and I get super excited when I run a fever. For me, it's a really good sign that my immune system is active um, and I've been taking things to actually activate my immune system and it happens straight after. So I think I overactivated my immune system. So um, not running a fever. So if you get a cold that lingers for two weeks, you don't quite recover from it, no fever. You should feel better. If you get a cold, it should last three to four days with a fever and you should feel better at the end of it than you did before it. That's a sign of a healthy immune system. You should get one of those a year, no problem. Yeah. If you're getting three to four lingering colds that last a couple of weeks and you feel worse after it and you feel fatigued, that's a sign of a weakened or rundown immune system. Increased allergic reactions, so you're getting allergies to foods and pollens and to grasses and sneezing when you go into certain rooms. There's definitely something weird going on with your immune system there. Prolonged healing of injuries. So if you get a scratch or a scar or you have a, you know, like Marcus's elbow, if that takes excessive amounts of time to heal, that can be a sign of a um, weakened immune system. Just general fatigue in general. We know chronic fatigue is very much linked to the immune system. So fatigue is signs. Autoimmunity, obviously um, diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, lupus, multiple sclerosis, um, and diabetes type 1 I'm talking about here are all signs of autoimmunity and a um, dysfunction of the immune system. Food allergies, skin infections, if you're having a blood um, test and your white cell count is low, sign of lowered immunity. Chronic ear infections, chronic tonsillitis, blood disorders like low platelet counts in ITP and things like that. Um, they're all signs of a weakened immune system. They are good. Yeah. Did you want to add to that? No, I just thought I'd just read something. I was just searching whilst you were going through that about fever. Yeah. For people listening, because I love seeing all these ads on TV for um, Panadol and you know Ugh. lowering a fever. And this is from the Royal Children's Hospital website. Okay. In Melbourne. Awesome. Right? So Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. This is they have a fact sheet on fever in children. Um, fever is a is a comp, fever is common in children. Fever is a normal response to many illnesses, the most common being infection in the body. Fever itself is not harmful. In fact, it helps the body's immune system fight off infection. Correct. Which is great. While fevers can be concerning for parents, doctors will usually be more concerned about what's causing the fever um, and not what the child's temperature is. So it goes into some more descriptions around that. And then lower down it says, obviously something people are concerned about is febrile convulsions. Uh-huh. Um, when and it, it gets talks, over 39. Yeah, and it's, it tends to happen more with a sudden raise of fever. Yes. So it doesn't really matter how high. Like my daughter's had three fevers that are at 41, yeah. 41 and a half. But slowly went up there. Yeah. And then the first one, she was really lethargic and, mm-hmm. you know, you could, and she was quite young. The other two, I didn't even know she had a fever. It was only yeah. when I was reading a book to her and I touched her head and I'm like, gosh, you're really hot. Her demeanor wasn't really changed. Yeah. Her body was just fighting something off, yeah. obviously, there. Um, and then it says, Febrile convulsions are not common and do not usually cause any long-term health effects, but see our fact sheet under that. So you can find that on the website and read about that. That um, was on the Royal Children's Hospital yeah. website? And right. then this is Care at Home. Um, here we go. Lowering your child's fever will not help treat the underlying illness more quickly. The only advantage to lowering a fever is improving your child's comfort. Love so, it. Did right? you get that? Yeah, it's really important, right? Because we you want the as a fever. parent as a parent, it's so hard to see a child suffering. Yeah. And we'll, all you want to do is intervene and try yeah. and make them feel better. 
but there's no advantage. They're saying on this on the Royal Children's Hospital website, wow. there is no advantage to lowering your blood. It's yep. not going to help them get over this nope. better. It's so, fevers are ama- like yeah. they're amazing, and now as adults, you know, when you lose the ability to kick a good fever, we have to artificially do it with things like saunas and. Inf- you know, to try and get four jumpers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You want to get that kick. So no, I'm a huge fan of a well managed fever. Let me say that. Mm. And again, as adults, we lose the ability to do that because we lose some of our vitalistic, vitalistic mechanism innately in our body. And it is important. I'll just say it is important though. I want to mean, like if you, if you've got an infant who's younger than three months and they've got a fever. Yeah. It's pretty important to take them to a, to a doctor. Absolutely. Because you know, most, whilst most fevers in this that even talks about it are generated by viruses, some are obviously by bacteria. Yeah, they can be much more harmful. Yeah, um, so you need to make sure you, you don't um, yeah, you don't you don't just sort of ride out too much if in when they're particularly young, and, particularly young and, as uh, they get and older. Yeah, as they get yeah. older, you know, Alki two and a half, so she she's um, has a fever. It usually actually comes and goes pretty quickly too. Yeah. In fact, she had one. Uh, she's got a little bit of a cough at the moment, as I said. She had one a few weeks ago when she first got this cough, and it was only there for two hours. Yeah, sort of came on. Burst into a fever, yeah, and then she's you know was a bit you know funny, and then she had to sleep, and then she's, she's been good. back to pretty much normal. Yeah, just has this cough remaining as her body's trying to obviously deal with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Okay, so what can weaken our immune system? So I'm going to go through causes here, and then I'm going to take you through a big overview of what I love to do in um, working with people's immune systems. So causes excessive sugar. We know excessive sugar. Um, weakens the immune system it definitely activates whole piles of uh, white blood cells out and, and causes to immune fatigue alcohol so excessive alcohol intake smoking too much or too little exercise will weaken the immune system so when i say too much we know in ultra marathon runners their immune system is lowered for 24 to 48 hours their white cell count drops and if they get after the race after a race yeah if they get an exposure then and off you know i um have worked with a lot of um professional athletes of endurance um, um, type activities that have chronic uh, lowered immune systems due to that. Stress. Stress produces excessive cortisol. Cortisol is part of the inflammatory response and so it's like your body thinks it's inflamed and that will um, affect your immune system. Toxin exposure. So we spoke about that right at the beginning of the podcast. You know, if you're out um, consuming or inhaling carbon monoxide all the time or you're putting toxins on your skin or you're taking toxins through any sort of environmental work hazard like asbestos and things like that um, environmental um, changes you know if you're exposed to a lot of um, electromagnetics and things like that uh, lack of sleep we know sleep is hugely important obesity um, so you're if you are overweight that um causes an excessive inflammatory response. An inflammatory response is part of the immune response, so we know that that will have an effect. Certain medications will weaken the immune system, so excess antibiotics, there are other medications that will do that as well. Dehydration, chronically dehydrated, will weaken your immune system. Obviously, chronic infections and exposures to things, poor nutrition, and then um, recreational drugs and things Mm -hmm. like that as well. Anything else that you wanted to add to no, that? No, I just think stress uh, related stress to exercise is a really yeah. interesting one as well. Yeah. Um, stress is such a big thing. Right? Oh, my it's goodness. like mental stress and worry. Yeah. It'll all work in your That, that obviously gets you. But um, then there are physical stresses yeah. um, that cause people. And, you know, with the exercise thing, exercise is good. We need oh, exercise. We movement, do. movement is essential for longevity. Yes. Um, there's... 
I'm sure you'd have heard of the phrase of eustress. Mm -hmm. So eustress is good stress. Yeah. You go to the gym, you challenge yourself, your body then re adapts to that challenge. Yes. Recovery is the most important part. Correct. Recover breaking your, all exercise does is break your body down. Yeah. And then challenge your body, and then yeah. your body has to adapt to that challenge. Yeah. And that happens in the phase of recovery. Correct. So all yeah. fitness gain, I hope people listen to this, all fitness gain comes in recovery, yes. not in the actual activity. Correct. Uh, and then that eustress is what creates the, our body's ability to adapt. Just like having a child get exposed to a virus is eustress because it allows the body to adapt and continue to grow itself. Yeah. But obviously, if you go too far, it becomes pathological. Yes. And then all of a sudden, our body breaks down too much. Yes, and, and you don't get about. any recovery. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And if you want to, like I would love to do an ultra marathon. In fact, yeah. it's in my sights at the moment. Yeah. You know, it, you have to be aware that that is going to create a certain level of harm. Yeah. And you have to support your body appropriately so you don't actually get yeah. uh, run down. Yeah. You yeah, know, exactly right. So let's talk about treatments. And I'm going to do, I'm going to talk about things that anybody can do. And then, you know, specifics for different conditions and things like that. They're a little bit more specific. But I want to just talk about things that people can do at home. So... Can we just before we yes. I think this is the best part to finish off on. Yeah. We haven't come back to autoimmunity significantly. All right. Let's, so, yeah, you're right. So you're let's right. Let's just Treatment do a really small, because autoimmunity could be a whole other. Autoimmunity like, should be a whole We'll do another one. We will do another we'll one. We'll do another so one. so people understand. Okay. So autoimmunity is where the body attacks its own tissues. So in your immune system, your T cells uh, can be what we call T helper one, T helper two. And if you think about T helper one and T helper two on a seesaw, generally, T helper one is um, when the body starts attacking its own tissue, and T helper two is more allergies, asthma, eczema, hay fever. So when we become pregnant, our body swings away from a T helper one dominance to a T helper two dominance to protect the baby because we're suddenly growing foreign tissue inside us, right? So. In autoimmune diseases, it's generally a dysfunction of the T helper 1 cells. It can be T helper 2, you can have the whole seesaw break, but you get an upregulation of T helper 1 cells. And then something called HLA genes. And HLA genes are like coders that say that is your myelin sheath, that is your joint cartilage tissue, that is your pancreas, that is your um, kidney tissue. When HLA genes get confused, and um, dysregulated as they do in autoimmunity, they can't tell the difference. So they look at, say, in multiple sclerosis, the myelin sheath and go, that's a foreign antigen. So it thinks the myelin sheath's an antigen and it sends white cells in to attack that antigen. In the case of something like type 1 diabetes, the antigen becomes um, cells within the pancreas that produce your insulin. And so that gets attacked in things like rheumatoid arthritis, it's obviously our um, joint tissue that gets um, attacked. And then in things like lupus, which is actually a dysfunction of T helper 1 and T helper 2, it attacks multiple different types of tissue. So autoimmunity is when the body attacks its own tissue. That's generally due to chronic upregulation of the immune system. So generally you've had um, chronic exposure of bacteria or viruses or toxins or something Something in there where I said what weakens the immune system, there's a chronic immune response going all the time. The HLA genes that code and say that's myelin, that's not, um, in the case of multiple sclerosis or joint tissue in rheumatoid arthritis, they are very much um, reliant on adequate vitamin D levels, which is why vitamin D is so important. So if you get 
um, long-term reduction in vitamin D, those HLA genes can become mismanaged that way. Um, Again, long-term exposure to chronic infections. Um, Viruses are really great at tricksting our body into making proteins look like our own body. So we know like the glandular fever virus or the Epstein-Barr virus that we spoke about earlier, we don't know the exact mechanism, but we know it's implicated in a lot of autoimmune diseases, especially multiple sclerosis. It seems to be a bit of a gateway virus. But chronic, my opinion, chronic bacteria and chronic viral exposure um, is generally that, plus vitamin D deficiency, so the HLA genes get all confused, and then a leaky gut, and generally stress and chronic inflammation. There's a sort of a, a storm that goes on with inside the body. That's the perfect environment for someone to develop an autoimmune type reaction. And then what happens is the body's thinking that tissue is an antigen and then it attacks it. So in autoimmune conditions, it takes a massive reset of the immune system um, to try and rein that whole thing back in. And that's, you know, an autoimmune disease is a a bolted stampede of horses. Like you, to rein them in and they're running all over the place, like... That takes a Herculean effort to get that back under control, but it is definitely possible. And uh, just one little question on that. Is it as simplistic as saying, um, could it be as simplistic as saying for some people, they've got a leaky gut, they eat um, something that um, has a protein that resembles the protein of myelin? Yes, Dairy, the dairy protein. Dairy protein looks almost exactly like myelin for a confused HLA gene. Yeah, so then all of a sudden your brain goes, your immune system says, this thing's attacking me. Yeah. And so then it goes back to your genes mm-hmm. and says, I need to mount a response yep. to this thing. Yep. It creates a coordinated immune response, yep. an antibody yep. to that protein. Yeah. And then because that pro, now that antibody is floating around your body and it comes across your myelin, yep. it says, hey, shit, that looks, here it is, here it is again. Yeah. And then starts attacking it. Yeah. Is that essentially... It's not quite that simplistic because your HLA genes are sophisticated enough to know the difference between dairy and myelin. But yeah. if the HLA genes are confused, yeah. generally due to viral bacteria exposure and vitamin D deficiency, then yeah. yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll come to that another day. Yeah. I'll have to do some reading before that. Autoimmunity is so interesting because it's so complex. But, um, yeah, autoimmunity, auto, body attacking its own tissue. So... Yep. And, you know, and I want to say too, people go, an autoimmune condition is your immune system's overactive. No, the immune system's dysfunctional. It doesn't mean it's overactive. Mm. Um, Because... You look at some, it's so interesting, like you look at some people, if I had an overactive immune system, I wouldn't have got a cold and I've got an autoimmune condition, right? But if I have this really hypervigilant uh, immune system, as a general term of being overactive, I'd never get a cold or flu. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, people with autoimmune conditions, it's quite interesting. You ask them, do you get cold or flu? They'll often say no. And, but then long term, the immune system changes. So it's not, I just want to be, um, that often that term gets blanketed around. It's a dysfunctional immune system it's probably interesting um for for the people to hear obviously you're um the reason we're having this conversation is because you know so much about immunity and the reason you know so much about immunity is because i've got yes an autoimmune condition and you've researched so much um preceding that um it'd be great for people because they can hear it firsthand why you developed oh um, i can tell you what 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 shit storm (laughs) happened for me I had, well, I'm yet to meet someone with 
multiple sclerosis that didn't have exposure to the Epstein-Barr glandular fever virus. So I had a glandular fever virus in year 12, the, the common part. Um, when I was living in Canada, lack of sunlight, but, you know, I lived in Canada for two years. I started to get what I now know were the symptoms, but, you know, I'd get fatigue where I couldn't lift my arms up and I'd get quite fatigued, but it would come and go. And then I was really st- – I ha- went to South America – and got bitten by a tick and got tick bite fever right before as well. Um, so I test for a whole pile of weird bacteria. And then I was super stressed. I had a really big clinic and I was really, really stressed. My vitamin D levels got low. And the year before, the summer before, I remember feeling really virally. I remember having the whole year. I got migraines. I don't get migraines. I got migraines like every other week for a portion of three months and I reckon I had some weird virus in there as well and that was before I got the tick bite fever so I don't think it's just as simple as saying I was stressed yeah as I was stressed or I had Lyme disease or anything yeah. like that I've, you know some people it is I think I have had the whole gamut so I think I was stressed obviously tick bite fever and whether I you know I do test positive for low levels of Lyme but not not extremely high and I don't present any other Lyme symptoms so I don't think it's just that um, plus um C pneumonia, which is the one that that C pneumonia is a bacteria which um, mimics MS. That's quite an active infection for me. Glandular fever. I had very low levels of vitamin D, and I was super stressed. So I had all of that happen right before diagnosis. So I kind of go, well, don't wonder. And we also that document I sent you. There could also be a mechanical component as well. Oh my spine! If you, I'll yeah. let Marcus explain what my poor old spine looks like. So oh, we just there's a document that. I got sent, there's some research that's been done by a gentleman that looks at what happens with straightening of the cervical spine. So we're meant to have a curve in our neck, a natural occurring curve. But if it straightens out due to the ligamentous attachments of the spinal cord to the spinal bones, it actually then starts to pull the bottom of the brain into the spine and affects the flow of cerebrospinal fluid around the brain. Mm -hmm. So if you have all this combination of stuff that Fiona's got going on, and That's the a stress. really tight thoracic yeah. section. And then all of a sudden, you, you, the, the brain's ability to bring nutrients and eliminate toxins from it is also affected yeah. um, through a mechanical means. This is obviously a hypothesis. Yes. Um, but you can see how that all comes together yeah. as a perfect storm yeah. um, to create that. And definitely I had a gluten allergy and a dairy allergy that um, I, I was on minimal amounts of those foods, but I wasn't super strict. And so I was eat. I had definitely had leaky gut as well. So I had all of that going on. So yeah, mine was all of it. Yeah, that was a big one. So um, hence my interest in immunity and autoimmune conditions specifically. But it also means like treating the immune system. I've got um, I know every trick under the sun. So do you want to get into those? Let's, let's get into let's those. Let's finish off here. With all this. right. So and when, when we go through it, as you say stuff. Um, depends on where how you're rolling this out because you, you get on these great um, momentum uh, you get this great momentum when you're talking about stuff I might even if I know slip in and yeah, say do. this relates to this part of the immune Perfect. system you spoke about earlier unless you're already doing it as you go as well no I wasn't so you do it so um, okay so I'm going to start with saunas so we spoke a little bit about fevers and the reason that saunas are so amazing is they release something called heat shock proteins and so heat shock proteins are potent immune modulators and they stimulate both the innate and the adaptive immune responses, specifically to cancers and tumours, they do know. But as we know that if the innate and the adaptive immune, so that's the quick fighting, I'm going to sneeze, 
<laughs> and the Bless adaptive you. immune system. <laughs> So heat shock proteins um, activate both of that, then you can imagine that that's a really useful thing to have. And so I am a huge fan of um, infrared saunas. Mm -hmm. I often get um, patients with any sort of immune condition in there. I find not only are you inducing a fever, so you're stimulating the immune system, you're taking back that ability that the body's lost generally through lack of vitality. A fever is a sign of vi vitalism in a naturopathic model. If mm -hmm. someone throws a fever, we say they've, they've got a good vital force. So um, a sauna is a great way to make that happen. And then what you want to do is I generally want people to sit in there for... Well, I want people to sweat for 20 to 30 minutes. Then you must have a cold shower or a shower straight after because you want to wash the toxins out. As you can imagine, you're releasing toxins from within inside the cells that's what you know sauna and sweating like that will do if you don't go and have a shower you're just going to reabsorb it all because as we know we spoke about the skin's super absorbent so if you're going to a place to have a um, infrared sauna make sure you go to a place that has a shower so you can have a shower straight after but i'm a huge fan of saunas what about internally elevating your head, the temperature in your body obviously your body's always regulating itself yeah so it doesn't it doesn't actually get much hotter than what it's meant to be. Yeah. But say exercising for 20, 30 minutes to Correct. sweat it out. Yeah, uh, yeah, like yeah. Well, exercise is definitely... Sort of heat shock. Definitely. We'll go there now. You know, exercise is one of my things. And, um, you know, for me, I, I, um, I love lifting weights. Like, that's my thing. And I do get a good sweat up if I'm lifting that. And again, you know, I talked about erectus hominis fragilis, you know, and we talked about the adapt... Uh, adap Stability of the body and so my next thing to talk after saunas was cold exposure and I think the immune system needs to have and be able to respond to the environment it's lost that ability that's what a vital person does so doing hot um, infrared saunas and exercising I lift really heavy weights you know that's part of my thing I want to give my body the ability to respond to greater things and then I do cold exposure like for me I'm trying to get my body I'm trying to knock it out of its equilibrium as often as possible because it's the recovery and the body's ability to recenter itself is where it's strengthening the immune system and strengthening my yeah. body. So I am all and about people might think because you lift heavy weights that yeah. you're some huge muscle bound chick. I'm tiny. Wait if you look at the photo on Instagram of this podcast episode and you'll see that it, it doesn't marry up. No. But she's strong. Yeah, no, I know my prior personal trainers is like you lift more than most of the competitive women in there. And you know, I know I'm I am freakishly strong and that's you know, I'm all about, I want to knock my body out of homeostasis as much as possible because that's what it can't do at the moment, right? It, it hasn't been able to do that in my immune system. So my ability to make my body as adaptive as possible, which is what I do with a lot of these treatments, helps bring my immune system with it back into balance and to be more adaptive because at the moment it's a, it's, I've got a non-adaptive immune system, you know, it's overreactive and things like that. So I'm, you know, and you and I both have talked about this before. Like we love knocking ourselves out to bring ourselves back into balance yeah. because I believe, you know, if a meteor hits our planet Earth next time, most people won't survive because people just don't know how to go without food in the cold. Whereas if you are at least giving your body the ability to adapt and have mm. practiced Challenge adaptation it. and challenged it, you know, it's a survival thing. You're going. To, you, not that I'm a doomsday protector, but I'm just saying that's what our bodies are meant to do. That's how yep. they're built. We've just lost the ability because we live in air-conditioned, temperature-controlled um, environment. You know, diet, eating-controlled environments where we don't get outside our comfort zone. So, saunas are really great, and that's you know the simple version is these heat shock proteins. 
Yep, and the, also helps cleanse the skin of toxicity. Absolutely, yeah. and and rids the and the lymphatic, and the lymphatic system, system as yeah, well. of toxins. Yeah, um, and then exercise is also great for your lungs. Oh my god, right. exercise is a whole so, different thing. You know, exercise you are moving the cardiovascular system, you're oxygenating tissue. Um, exercise reduces. So when you exercise, you release a cytokine cytokine called interleukin ten. Interleukin ten. So not all cytokines are bad. Interleukin 10, or inflammatory responses have had. So, interleukin 10 down regulates pro inflammation like interleukin 6. So, a certain amount of exercise reduces inflammation, which is super important. And inflammation is part of your immune system's response. And as we've spoken, chronic inflammation is part of a chronic immune picture. So, exercising um, the right amount of time for your body and, and those sort of things actually reduces inflammation in the body, which is why I'm such a huge fan of it. Apart from it, releases endorphins, makes you feel good. We know that if you feel good and laugh a lot, you release certain cytokines and chemicals in the body that makes your immune system work more effectively. So um, laughing is one of the other things I'll come down to. You know, Patch Adams, if you've watched that movie and he used to make kids laugh, you know, they know that laughing and and having a good time. There's this, this woman that was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I think she talks about it on The Secret, and all she did was sat inside a house and watched funny movies for three to four weeks, and her cancer has disappeared, and she just was laughing, and, you know, like laughing and having a good time. So um, exercise produces, you know, feel-good chemicals as well. And we before we came on this podcast, <laughs> I was speaking to Fiona. I went for a run... Uh, the other day, one of the days, <coughs> yep. and I didn't have a lot of time, so I did uh, some intervals. Um, so from my house along Beaconsfield Parade, basically on the way out to St Kilda, every second parking metre, I, I went hard, and yep. then jogged and hard and jogged. On the way back, I did every second. So I did two parking metres and jogged one, yep. three parking metres, jogged one, four parking metres, jogged one, until I got home, I just kept increasing yep. it. So I was like smashed at the end of this thing. Yeah. And I started thinking about the role of carbon dioxide. I'm like, well, if carbon dioxide is poisonous to my tissues, maybe it's also poisonous to viruses and bacteria. Yeah. And so I asked Fiona this when I got here, um, and just when she was talking about that, I quickly had a quick Google, and there was an article that was in the Australian newspaper this year. Wow. So only a few months ago, where they were talking about carbon dioxide in water, in um, water consumption, uh, killing off bacteria and viruses in the water. I haven't read the whole article yet. I just got a, a snippet. Um, but I'll, that's another interesting thing. So if that was to be true, another mechanism of exercise from an immune perspective is actually the fact that you would have carbon dioxide in your body. Yeah. Sure, it's getting transported around, but maybe there might be some um, impact yeah. on whatever else is in your body at the same time. So interesting. This discussion is to be continued as oh, we Especially do like if you have an upper respiratory illness, yeah. like the flu. Yeah. And you're, um, you know, you're bringing carbon dioxide back into your lungs. Yeah. So interesting. Anyway, mm. very, very interesting. So, so continue on with what you're... Yeah, no, so my next thing is cold exposure. So those of you who haven't heard of Wim Hof, I highly recommend you go and look him up. He's an amazing man and has done um, and brought to the forefront just how important cold exposure is. And we know that... Um, and when I'm talking cold exposure, we're talking ice baths or cry chambers where you're getting down to, you know, minus 120 degrees and things like that. So it's not just basic cold exposure or having cold showers. And so the research shows that cold exposure increases 
uh, blood circulation increases your white blood cell count, it decreases your inflammatory cytokine response, it decreases cortisol levels, and it decreases inflammation. So there is a myth that cold exposure, for whatever reason, that we call it catching a cold, right? But that model was done in mice. It actually was never tested in humans. And they did a big study on people that lived in Antarctica and had cold exposure, and they didn't have an increase in colds or flus. Mm. So the whole fact that getting cold increases your risk of catching a cold or flu is a myth. And then I just wonder whether it's it becomes a subliminal program. So if you get cold, you're going to catch a cold or flu. So Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe it's just that people are so sheltered nowadays compared to the past. They, they, they don't have the adaptability. Yeah. Right? So going out in the cold, so we're inside in a heated room at the moment, yeah. going out into the cold, um, if you're not adaptable, would create quite an element of shock, yeah. stress, stress to the body, reduced immune function, you're more, yeah, maybe. You're more likely. But um, if you, it's not the cold itself. It's no. the fact that you haven't been exposing yourself to the cold. It's the fact that you have reduced your body's adaptability that creates that, that outcome. Yeah, in maybe. In fact, it's not, not the cold itself that's yeah. the problem. And I mean, a cold is a bacterial infection, right? So it's not just cold exposure. Yeah. So there's, yeah. So I want you to get... The bacteria virus still has to be in your body. Correct. It doesn't just get there because you're cold. Correct. Because you're feeling cold. So you have to get out of your mind that um, cold exposure is bad because it makes you far more adaptable. So Mm -hmm. if you go and look up Wim Hof, so just so you know what I do, um, I have cold showers and um, I get into a cryo chamber once a week. So there's Alchemy Cryo down there in um, Chapel Street. So I jump in there once a week and get my body down to minus 120 degrees. Um, if you've met my, my, my dad, who's a big Wim Hofer, he's about to go and do Wim Hof's uh, retreat in Spain with my mum. But he, my mum and my dad go swimming in Cardinia Lake, which is up here in Melbourne in um, Emerald. That's cold in winter. They swim in there three times a week after they've gone to the gym. They're in their 70s. So, if, well, my dad is. If... if um, my parents can do it, you can do it. So, And it's um, he had a um, chronic immune reaction and that's made a huge difference to him. Wim Hof is also a breathing technique as well, but the cold exposure is particularly what I'm talking about. Um, we've covered exercise. Um, I spoke earlier on about a nutrient-dense diet, you know, juicing and, um, you know, your probiotic um, fermented foods and things like that. I spoke about intermittent fasting. Um, sleep. Sleep is super important. Um, we know a correct sleep-wake cycle and not having enough sleep can be pro-inflammatory for some people. Um, sleep is also, you know, Marcus spoke about the recovery. So sleep is where you recover. It gives your body's ability to recover and reduce inflammation. So sleeping in a dark room, really important. Um, and then there's some basic things like sunshine and light. Vitamin D is a huge component of the immune system. So getting you know light exposure and it's not just vitamin d like sunlight has a whole pile of things in it that are not just vitamin d related so getting out into the sunshine we spoke earlier about dry skin brushing really great for lymphatic system so if you're um got skin wound healing stuff or you know some people get um swelling in the legs and things like that or if they know that they're getting lots of tonsillitis all those tonsil glands and things that you know swollen lymph nodes and stuff they're very um related to the lymphatic system so that dry skin brushing where you get a dry hard bristle brush and brush up towards the heart on um dry skin before you have a shower and then rebounding so for you know, patients that have been diagnosed with, say, leukemias and blood cancers and things like that, I get them to do something called rebounding, which are the mini trampolines, and you bounce up and down 
on the mini trampoline and that actually improves lymphatic flow around the body so it stops stagnant lymph flow um interesting side fact did you know that one of the professions with the lowest amount of um lymphatic congestion and um cancers is orchestra conductors because they're if you imagine an orchestra conductor they're moving their upper arms with their arms up in the air and so they're draining lymph down through the nodes there you go um spoke about laughing and having a good time we know that laughter releases really amazing chemicals in the body that um, decreases tumor formation Mm -hmm. and things like that it also laughing boosts your immune function Um, and then basic things vitamin a vitamin a is really great so your mucous membranes are coated in something called secretory iga and secretory iga is like your bacterial or not antibacterial um it's a um, barrier is the word i wanted barrier mucus um formation that goes through all of our mucous membranes and it's um like a secretion that gets um produced through mucous membranes to break down and um dissolve bacteria and things like that and vitamin a helps increase secretory iga levels um vitamin d also super important and what's great for children is cod liver oil cod liver oil you remember Mark, Marcus might be too young for this but cod you know oil. cod liver oil where grandma used to force feed cod liver no, no, oil no. down your throat no. And cod liver oil is a combination of vitamin A and vitamin D. Yeah. Really great for children because it improves this secretory IgA um, production on your mucous membranes. And then vitamin D is super important for your immune function. Then you've got good old vitamin C, um, which is super high in fruits and vegetables and things like that. So um, Kiwi fruits. Kiwi really fruits, like fabulous. Orange. Oranges, um, cranberries, all of those sort of things. Cherries. So vitamin C... Um Obviously, some of this you've been chiming in with where they affect your body. My understanding is that vitamin C helps with your natural killer cells or vitamin, or more like your uh, macrophages, mm-hmm. uh, phagocytosis, that yep. sort of stuff. Vitamin C comes in and helps activate that. Is that true? Yeah, um, that's my... I don't know the exact mechanism of vitamin C. I know if you have... Um, I know it's really great for more bacterial infections, so that would make more sense that it's a more innate, you yep. know, it's more urinate than... Um, than your adaptive immune system so um, it, it also works on your inflammatory pathway so it works through cytokines as well um, and reduces cytokine inflammatory response so mm-hmm. that's the mechanism that I know it most for um, yeah okay I'll have a quick look up while you go into your next one they're my major ones and then you know so and then they're the ones that anyone can do at home then you've got a whole pile of herbs and things that you can do in between that but they're very specific approaches if we've got colds and flus and we're coming into winter i'm a huge fan of just good old olive leaf extract or um, an echinacea extract and some zinc um, and vitamin c um, as a preventative cod liver oil vitamin a and d uh, c when you get sick and then things like meditation and reducing your stress levels you know, the less stressed you are, the less likely you are to get sick. Mm-hmm. Um, the better you're eating and juicing and all of those sort of things. That's always super-duper important. Making sure you're not eating a lot of um, sugar and reducing your alcohol intake. Um, you know, if you get a lot of respiratory infections. So what's really interesting, if you know you get a lot of sinus and upper respiratory infections, taking dairy and mucus-forming foods out. I had a patient in here the other day diagnosed with um, NS, but also with a chronic sinus infection and I remember reading years ago that they'd done studies with people with chronic sinus infections and of course the bacteria sitting right behind there in a chronic position it could cross the blood-brain barrier so all I did with this patient while we're waiting on other tests was I treated the sinus infection with herbs and took them off dairy 
and the and this person had had a chronic sinus infection for maybe five years and listening to them talk they just sounded like they were speaking through a microphone and so I'm like that cannot be doing a or helping their MS condition and so all I did was take them off dairy and um, that made a huge improvement to the sinus infection it pretty much cleared up and then we put herbs in on top of that and I already know that will have a massive long-term overflow into the MS because you're not having bacteria crossing that blood-brain barrier because you know sinus is right there yeah so um, if you're getting sin- if you've got a cold or flu and things like that then definitely take mucus forming foods like bananas Pineapple, ice cream, dairy, all of those sort of things should come out. Sugar is very mucus forming. Um, yeah. Uh, this is on vitamin C, which yeah. is interesting. Um, vitamin C contributes to immune defense by supporting various cellular functions of both innate and adaptive um, immune systems. Vitamin C supports epithelial barrier function against pathogens and promotes the oxidant scavenging effect activity of the skin thereby potentially protecting against environmental oxidative stress. Ah, yes, it is an Vitamin C accumulates in phagocytic cells, such as neutrophils, and can enhance chemotaxis, phagocytosis, um, generation of reactive oxygen species, and ultimately uh, microbial killing. It is also needed for the apoptosis and clearance of, um, of the spent neutrophils from sites of infection by macrophages, thereby decreasing necrosis and potential tissue damage. Yeah, so it's basically mop-up, so it helps with mop-up. It helps the mop-up, and it helps the cells activate to kill. Then it talks about lymphocytes, and how um, the role of vitamin C in lymphocytes is less clear, but has been shown to enhance differentiation and proliferation of B and T cells, likely due to gene-regulating effects. Great. So it helps. Vitamin C is pretty important. And then it it actually talks about... here. Prophylactic prevention of infection requires dietary vitamin C intakes that provide at least adequate, if not saturating, plasma levels of 1 to 200 milligrams per day, which optimize cell and tissue levels. In contrast, treatment of established infections requires significantly higher, in brackets, gram doses of vitamin to compensate for the increased inflammatory response and metabolic demand. So multiple grams. Yeah. yeah, and you know, vitamin C causes something called bowel tolerance. So what you do with vitamin C if you've got a cold or flu is you take a teaspoon. A thousand milligrams. So yeah, like every two hours. two hours until you get diarrhea. Once you get diarrhea, you've taken too much and you just go one dose behind that and that's at tissue saturation or as yeah. much as your body can tolerate. And you keep doing that and what will happen is your body gets over the infection, your ability to tolerate that will go down, you'll get diarrhea with less dosages. The other thing I forgot to mention that's super important, you jog my memory in there, is antioxidants. Mm-hmm. Um, so E and um, vitamin C is an antioxidant and then grapefruit seed extract and um, not grapefruit seed, grape extract and resveratrol is what I'm thinking of and things like that that are... Um, potent antioxidants, coenzyme Q10, all of those sort of things, antioxidants that mop up um, chemical exposure and free radical damage which is um, where cells get damaged of course you can imagine that if you're damaging a cell it's going to cause or activate your immune system to increase inflammation so antioxidants are really great at keeping the body clean and will reduce the inflammatory immune response as well so antioxidants are super important zinc is also one of my favorite uh, nutrients because zinc helps plug up the tight gap junctions in the gut Um, and is super good for um, improving um, immune function. 
And then making sure things like, I find apple cider vinegar can be great too because it improves digestive enzymes. So you're reducing the, um, or you're helping your body to reduce the potential burden of undigested proteins on the gut immunity. So a bit of apple cider vinegar if you think your immune system's not so great. So they're my big do-at-home basic tips. And then anything more complex than that. And then if you're interested in blood tests and things like that, you can do a white cell count. And mm-hmm. you can get a differentiation in there, but you're looking for total white cell count to see that that's not too low. Um, and then you can do things like you can do leaky gut tests, food allergy tests, you can do stool tests and microbiome tests, you can do cytokine tests. There's a whole pile of tests that you can do in there to find out what your immune system's up to. And so, one last thing I say is also vitamin D because you talked about that. Um, yeah. They did some research. I've got a little bit here that I've, I've pulled up. They um, researchers pulled data on 11,321 people from 25 separate trials to try and get an understanding of how vitamin D affects immune function. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, people tend to get more ill in winter because they have less sun. Correct. Um, so it, it is, um, again, another common sense kind of conversation. The team looked at respiratory tract infections, which obviously covers quite a wide range of illnesses. But overall, the study said that one person would be spared infection for every 33 taking vitamin D supplements. Um, That is more effective than the flu vaccination, which needs 40 people to prevent one case. Wow. So um, they're really careful there, though, in saying that, you know, um, that obviously a flu is a much more significant illness than um, a common cold. Yeah. But... uh, the point of this is just to say to show people that how taking a vitamin isn't just like taking some you know weird herbal type thing like it can have a significant impact on the function of people's immune function so vitamin d a daily dose of vitamin d through winter is you know we're coming into winter at the moment so from a preventative measure making sure people i mean kiwi fruits are in season kiwi fruits oranges making sure you get natural until you vitamin see or d, d. Uh, see, c, yeah. right to get natural and then also taking some vitamin D drops yeah. maybe through winter is a really good way. You know, just a thousand a thousand units a day yeah. um, is it can be enough. Can they? Re- I've also read research that says you know you can have you know three to four thousand units a day with no effect. With no, it takes a quite a bit to get. You know, like doctors worry about toxicity. But here's something interesting with vitamin D. Now that you're on the topic, is You've got uh, two main genes that regulate vitamin D, vitamin D TAC and vitamin D FOC. And basically, for someone like me, if I do a gene test, both of those, I've got a what we call a homozygous dysregulation on those genes, which means both of those genes, are, genes like dimmer switches, right? So if no one has a gene mutation on there, the dimmer switch is up 100%. For me, both of those genes have got mutations on them. And so... And a double mutation, so from um, both mum and dad. And so that's like the dimmer switch has turned all the way down to 10%. So even if my blood test levels, say, have 100 um, international, oh, 100 um, milligrams per liter, I can't remember the actual reading there on the end of a vitamin D, but anything over 100 is good. If my vitamin D comes back at 100, it's like having vitamin D in my body and my cells just can't see it because they're only operating at 10%. So for me, I have my vitamin D level sitting closer around to the 220 mark because I need more vitamin D because my body can't uptake it like someone without a gene fault on the vitamin D receptor. So 
in autoimmune disease and chronic immune um, issues, knowing what your vitamin D receptors are up to will determine actually how much vitamin D you should take and what your blood levels should look like. Um, and, you know, some doctors get worried about anything over 200 being toxic, but the studies that I've seen is that Australian lifeguards can have up to 800 units in their body at any one time without showing any signs of toxicity. Um, if you were to supplement and get your levels up to 800 supplementing, you may see toxicity, but you're generally not going to see toxicity to about 500. Mm. And so in chronic immune conditions, um, you know, on myself, especially because I know I've got a double receptor fault there, I take big doses of vitamin D especially in winter because I know my body doesn't absorb it. So um, definitely when working with vitamin D, you know, it's great to get a blood test and don't think that, um, you know, a blood level of 75 may necessarily be good for you, especially if you've got a chronic immune deficiency or an autoimmune disease. You may need a lot higher blood levels of vitamin D Mm. to actually have the vitamin D has been effective due to these genes. And um, just the, I didn't mention that that was actually published in the British Medical Journal. Great, there you go. So it's not like it's in some nuffy journal. Yeah. Um, It's in a very prestigious journal. But like we spoke about earlier, when new research comes about, it sometimes takes a long time for it to end up in medical journals. A very long time. This is only new. This was only a couple of years ago, and there's been considerable debate around, you know, the role of this research. Yeah. So, you know, at this point in time, I tend to take that information and go, well looking um instead of looking at it from an inductive logic of trying to apply that piece of research looking deductively around we know that people get more sick in winter we know sunlight's important we know vitamin d is important yeah so trying to have a, a little bit of extra vitamin d through winter is only going to help you absolutely uh, but having too much could obviously create toxicity so it's important to work with someone like yourself to understand yeah you know, those individual aspects of um what's going on in the body but yeah yeah vitamin d is my you know it's my favourite go-to for for winter. I think, like you said, and I didn't know about the the vaccine comparison, but that makes sense to me. Yeah. And I think that people do take vitamin D, but I think people do that without knowing blood and testing. It's not an either or, right? When it, no, you don't do one or the other. It's no, same, no, no. It's, they're merely making a comparison, comparison of how effective it is. Yes. So they're saying it's actually highly effective to have vitamin D. Yeah. And when you, when I remember at the time when that came out, I read about it, and they found because there's different ways you can administer it. You can have like one big bolus, and that is meant to last you for yes. months. Yes. Or you can have you know ongoing regular drip fed little yeah. bits. And, it was and I'm pretty sure the regular one Correct. outperformed. Yes. Uh, not, not, I mean, I'm almost certain. That yeah, it, it did. That was what it was, so. I mean, I do the same. Some of my patients have been told to take like 10,000 once a week, but I prefer people to take yeah. more regular, smaller mm-hmm. amounts. So. Great. Well, is there anything else you want to add before I we go? I don't think so. It's, a, it's pretty amazing that in two hours, 20 minutes, we can go through the whole immune system. Yeah. Um, Just know, you know, the immune system is... You know, it's such a complex thing because it it involves so many different organs and, you know, parts and it has to work with it. And it's like, it's the conversation piece, you know. Yeah. I find the immune system is your conversation piece and it's interacting with your external environment, your microbiome. And, and it's when there's a breakdown in communication um, within in that system that we have issues going. So I'd yeah. say from the metaphysical, you can always look in your life and see where there's a breakdown in your own external yeah. communication. Um, but then looking at what we're doing when we're working with the immune system is looking at how we can improve that communication or make it more effective. And 
um, you know, get those systems working. And I think my other big tip, and I think Marks would probably agree with this, is get adaptive. Make your body adaptive. Don't lose yeah. that adaptability. Get out there. Get yourself cold. Get yourself hot. Go to the gym. Get go moving. Yeah. You know, eat good food and that adaptability. Yeah, don't, and Don't become bubble boy. Don't, don't become bubble, bubble boy. boy. Intermittent fasting. You know, all yeah. those sort of things. I think they're all super important to make us more robust humans, which mm. will in turn make our immune systems more robust. So let's wrap this up in saying that you know, there, there was 10 different aspects to the immune system that we went through in terms yeah. of organs and cells and so forth, and, you know, skin and tonsils and adenoids, mucous membranes, thymus, lymphatic system, spleen, gut-associated lymphoid tissue, gut, the appendix, lungs, bone marrow, you know, immune cells. We we covered a lot there, but I think the really, the really key idea from this podcast was to try and help people understand that immune function is quite complex it's very complex and yeah. it's it's not just up to one or two aspects of our body a large amount of our body's resources are there to try and help us um, thrive yeah. and defend against anything that may impact on our ability to thrive exactly and because of the complex nature of it and then and all of those aspects all combine together to create this layering effect of response you know from local very quick response like a cut on our body, to systemic-wide um, responses, that there's a growth to that that occurs through life, and those layers are really important. And we want to make sure the things that we do from a lifestyle perspective and the decisions we make are in alignment with trying to enhance that. So mm-hmm. trying to give people advice as we're heading into winter now, the best thing that we can possibly do is to try and live in accordance with our body's genetic expression and our innate in, um, intelligence of our body yeah. to try and make all of these elements function together and maximally at the same time yeah. um, in the right way. So, yeah. you know, those lifestyle interventions that you spoke about are, are super important. And if people have any questions about trying to, you know, change their lifestyle to you know, influence um, the, their body's ability to work at its optimum then they should touch base with yeah. yourself. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Come in and have a chat. Awesome. Cool. Great. Let's um I'm gonna get some food now. My hung my hunger's risen to a level where yeah. I, I'm about to start adjusting later, so I need to concentrate. Sounds good. Yeah. Alright, cool. Thanks. See Bye. ya. Thanks for tuning in to the Superwell podcast. For more information on any of our episodes, head over to www.superwell.com.au and you can get all the episodes there. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can also find links to iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you want to continue the conversation on with us, then head over to our Instagram page at Live Superwell and follow us there and comment under each episode. Uh, If you want to give us any feedback, you can also get in touch via email on the webpage too. So until next episode, live super well.